Welcome to Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 10 of DDG Pod, where we welcome to the guild hall a designer from the oddest place on earth, the United Kingdom, who has created two of the least conventional and most beloved games in the OSR community. As mentioned previously on our show, games from the old-school renaissance or old-school revival movement can take on many forms. Our guest this episode has produced two games remarkable in their strangeness, both of which take us on a journey into one of the oddest settings in tabletop role-playing, where all rules are light, all characters are random, and treasure is your only option. So without further ado, let's get on to our main event. Today, on Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered a veteran treasure hunter who has braved both deep country and the underground to retrieve strange arcana. A man with a hundred past failed careers, including Rook Tamer, an amateur amputator, and the designer of the OSR games Into the Odd and Electric Bastion Land, Chris McDowell. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, not too bad. How are you? Great. And uh, what borough of Bastion Land are you calling in from? So I'm calling from Manchester in the UK, or rather just south of Manchester, just outside the city itself. Okay. Is that where you're from originally? No. So I'm originally, well, (laughs) this is going to sound like a very short distance compared to the US. (laughs) I'm from about 50 miles south of here. I'm from Staffordshire, which is sort of between Birmingham and Manchester for anyone that knows their, their UK geography. And yeah, I'm from a very kind of rural little town, basically. And I moved to Manchester about 10 years ago. So yeah, I feel like there's been lots of discussions. We'll we'll get to this later on. But there's been lots of discussions around in Electric Bastion Land. There's a lot of clash between like sort of urban and rural lifestyles. And I'm hoping that I've got to experience both of them. So I'm in a fair position to to judge that argument. Excellent. Okay. So you're originally from 50 miles south, which is a great distance in the UK. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) And uh Where and when did you start gaming? So like I say, I grew up in a, the town that I grew up in was very small. I think about 20,000 people. And it was, hang on, I'm going <laughs> to, I've said that out loud. And I was like, that sounds like a lot of people now that I've said it out loud. <laughs> but yeah, it's about 20,000 people. So not small by any means, but small in the sense of limited options for recreation when you're growing up, let's say. And yeah, that my first, sort of first exposure to gaming was, I'd always sort of played like, you know, every home has like Monopoly and Yahtzee and things like that in. And I'd always been interested in like video games, but it would have been when I was 10 years old, it was sort of show and tell day at school. And one of the kids from the year above, so, you know, an an older child, a wizened 11 year old compared to me being 10 years old, (laughs) they seemed like they were like some kind of sage that knew everything at that age. 
he'd brought in his like Warhammer 40k miniatures and like a load of White Dwarf magazines and stuff. And I'd just never seen anything like it, really. And that kind of sent me down the spiral, if you like, into the sort of tabletop games stuff. So yeah, I grew up with Games Workshop stuff, which is kind of, it's kind of the classic start, I guess, for people in the UK. And I was always kind of loosely aware of D&D in the background, but it just, it always felt like something that was sort of unattainable, I think. At the time, I probably wasn't even aware of other role-playing games, really. I just knew like this monolithic D&D thing existed and kind of a loose idea of what it meant to play a role-playing game. But yeah, in terms of role-playing games, I sort of eventually took the plunge into D&D with third edition which was around 2000 i think it was and yeah then it, it all went downhill from there so that, that was my kind of first step into rpgs okay and what made you make the leap then from miniatures into rpgs so the thing that i liked about what appealed to me about like the warhammer games when i was you know 10 years old and sort of growing up with them was i never liked making huge armies like i liked the idea of it but i was never any good at the painting i'd argue i'm still not very good at painting and i always found the modeling side of things very difficult because you know it was lead miniatures and we didn't really have great tools that i could use or anything like that and there was you know no internet so i couldn't like get any help with it so i found the whole the idea of modeling a whole army was just kind of alien so i did like the smaller scale games so the games that appealed to me were things like necromundo which was like the skirmish game and warhammer quest which was their sort of dungeon crawler game and the appeal of things like that was that kind of you could zoom in on like your character i guess and you're sort of like especially with warhammer quest you're kind of like exploring the unknown and it's actually like a gmless game so it, i played it a lot when i was growing up with my friend and we'd sort of we'd both be the players and you just kind of going through this deck of cards telling you like what room comes out next and what encounter is in that room but the idea of that kind of exploring of the unknown really appealed to me and with rpgs it was the sort of the promise of well imagine that but you can now do anything so you're not just limited to what's coming out of the cards and you're not limited to what's on your little cardboard character sheet you can now say oh i want to try well why can't we start a fire in this room and why can't i use my rope to like make some kind of tripwire across this door just because there's no rules for it in you know warhammer quest because it's essentially a, a board game and yeah that promise of being able to do anything is what really appealed to me i think it, it was always the frustration of playing like video games and things like that where you think you should be able to do something but you can't or like you see an area and there's an invisible wall stopping you getting there i think the idea of like breaking that barrier was always what really got me excited about the idea of like tabletop rpgs certainly okay so you started in D, which is the most obvious place to start hmm how did that work out for you in the beginning? Did you then have to learn it yourself and teach it to your friends or what was the process there? Yeah. So I had friends that were into like Warhammer games and stuff when we were growing up, but none of them were really into the idea of role-playing games. I think it was a step too far, like down the social ladder, I think. And we were teenagers and I was like thoroughly ashamed that this was something I was looking at doing. It's a very strange thing to look back on now, but it was really hard to like sell the idea so when i bought the dnd books for like third edition it was just when was it it was around 2000 so i would have been about maybe it was 2001 so like i'm maybe like 16 years old which is kind of like the worst age to try and do it in many ways because all of the social gatherings going on when you're 16 are focused elsewhere let's say it's much easier now that i'm in my 30s and i can just suggest to all my friends let's have a 
a very uncool night in where we play D&D and board games and everyone's on board with it. But when you're 16, everybody's trying to, you know, everybody's trying to be cool, aren't they? Mm. So it was uh, it was one of those things where I, I sort of bought the books and I could never quite get like friends to try it out. They would never quite want to take the plunge or I'd get like one of my friends to try it out and we'd do it and it wouldn't quite work because it's, you know, you really need like a, a table full of people. So I took the plunge into like playing online, really, and playing like forum-based games, which was really... I, I mean, I, I'm sure you can play forum-based games really well, but play-by-post with D&D 3rd Edition when it's like your first role-playing game, it was a very rough entry into the hobby, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough going. It's it's slow going, rather, I should say. Like, It's great when you're doing like the role-playing side of things, and I enjoyed that. But then as soon as the mechanics start to interject, it becomes tricky to do that in play-by-post. So yeah, the, the D&D 3rd Edition didn't really stick for me for that reason so i started to then look into rules light games really around that time mainly to play on well it, to be honest it, it was on forums but also on on irc as well i'm sounding like an old man now but in chat rooms so playing online via text and um, having like rules light is much better so i was looking at things like rissus and there were things like microlight 20 sort of coming out around then and the big one was searches of the unknown which was like a D&D stripped back to the, the absolute minimum. And when I sort of eventually reached to that point, that was when something really clicked for me that this was, for what I wanted to get out of role-playing games, this was kind of all that I needed because all of that stuff in third edition that was to do with rules and, you know, character abilities and all this balancing stuff, like I can see the appeal, but that wasn't what originally got me excited. It, it was originally the idea that you can try anything and that kind of tactical infinity, I've heard it called. And just by stripping the rules back, I felt like I was, you know, I was finally like engaging with the hobby that I wanted to rather than a sort of a slightly different version of what I thought I'd signed up for. Okay, so you started to play third edition on forums, which I can imagine was a nightmare. I mean, I love third edition. That's where I started too, but yeah, sure. you didn't necessarily realize how difficult third edition was because everyone just talked about how much easier it was than second edition at the time. Right, yes, I can imagine, yeah. But so that's interesting. So you actually learned from internet forums and play by post, and then you started to discover rules like games when did you bring it back to the table so at the time i was probably doing a lot of my gaming on irc it was like the protocol for chat rooms so it was basically chat rooms like text just text chat so it's like an old version of discord i guess for all the kids listening but minus all the features of discord that aren't just text so i was in a few like irc channels where people were you know playing games there via text and in some ways that it's very different to playing at the table but there is something quite nice about it as well because with a different pace you do get a different sort of feel of game but i eventually did think right well at some point i would like to you know get this to the table and like you say, I would like to play more regularly, like with games with people around tables, which I was doing sort of very occasionally at like the odd meetup or like convention or things like that. But it was very, very rare. So th this is where the rules like stuff really appealed to me. And I thought, well, as a secondary little way in here, this might be something that I can much more easily convince other people to play. And sort of like my friends that are like daunted by the idea of this big stack of third edition rule books that's like you can barely pick it up with one hand. I think the idea of saying like, I'll explain the rules to you in two minutes and then we're just going to start playing and you, you just say what you want to do. And then I will tell you 
what happens. The idea of stripping it down to the basics like that, it did make it a lot easier to get things to the table. So I, I then sort of played some things with some friends that were sort of like, as I was hacking together my own rules-like system, that is what eventually would become Into the Odd, essentially. Okay, so the rules-like games that you're playing with, they weren't like official publications necessarily. These were things that you were oh, no. kind of printing off and then bringing to your friends and saying, okay, let's give this a shot. Yeah, and I mean, the fact that they were free is also like a benefit because <laughs> like you can just like send a link to someone ahead of time and say, hey, do you fancy playing this? And it was around this sort of time that I was sort of discovering so sort of like after well I guess parallel to like the IRC things I was in, involved with there was the whole Google Plus thing started to happen and sort of the the sort of OSR community that sort of grew out of that and all of a sudden there was a lot more focus on being able to just you know play over video chat so playing with Google Hangouts and I'd always struggled to like even on IRC if I was bringing some rules like thing to the table that was not really affiliated to D&D. It's very difficult to get enough people because a lot of people are just wanting to play D&D. And with the benefit of things like Microlight 20 and Search of the Unknown is you can kind of say to people, hey, do you want to play some d and I'm running this really simplified version of D&D. And people will still say, yeah, yeah, I, li- I like d and I'll play it. And you can almost trick them into trying something a bit different. <laughs> so when I started Into the Odd, I just started calling it like my D&D hack on Google+. And like I was writing about it on the blog. So I was trying to like build up a little sort of group of players that I could run with sort of semi-regularly. And yeah, the, the ability to play on Hangouts was just, that was like revolutionary for me personally, because the, the games I could get around the table were very rare, like once or twice a year, maybe. I, I should say at the time I was, this was before I'd moved to Manchester, which is, you know, a big city. So I was still in a very small area. So it was it was hard to find people to play with. So yeah, being able to do that online and that sort of OSR community that was like ready to go. And you could just put up a post an hour before saying who wants to play in an hour and you'd get, you know, you get four people and you could go and play a game. That's what really cemented the idea that I wanted to make into the odd, into something that like fit this kind of mold, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. So did you ever end up dabbling in other games from major publishers or is it strictly a progression from D&D to rules light fantasy games to your own game? Yeah, I think after that point, oh, I mean, I've, I've missed out a giant, a giant chunk of my early role playing. I'm not going to go all the way back, but, um, before D&D, I, I did pick up Warhammer Fantasy role play first edition years before I'd played D&D, but that was kind of like, I did a few sort of failed experiments to run that and it didn't really work out for me, but I, I do still love it. So other than that in D&D, I probably didn't buy another like published rules system after that, really, because there was just so much free stuff. And I just liked being able to look at all these different ideas rather than sort of committing to one i've always liked being like a magpie and just picking out the bits that i like from various sources and just a wealth of free stuff that was online i mean like genuinely free stuff <laughs> not, not, not sort of pirating things right but like things that were made by like one person and they were like this is my system here it is it's got very basic layout it's just a word document what do you think i was a lot more interested in that weirdly rather than like the next sort of polished shiny book at the time since then i have got a lot more into like picking up nice shiny books but yeah at the time well i mean the, the, the osr attitude at the time kind of was do it yourself it was like anyone can make a system everyone's going to end up making loads of house rules anyway so why not just make your own game i guess it was kind of like a dumb overconfident approach i was just like yeah i'll just make my own game so yeah from quite an early stage i was just like i'm just going to make my own games i'm not going to buy someone else's the big one for me was searches of the unknown was kind of the catalyst for me thinking i wanted to make my own thing because search of the unknown is a one-page D hack where the only stats your character has are you have like your hit dice you have your armor class you have your movement score which i think is 
entirely derived from your armor class. And I think you have a saving throw. No, I think the saving throw is just derived from your HD. And you have your damage, sorry, that you cause. So if you have a sword, it's D6 damage, and that's it. There's nothing else. And it's kind of like an experiment. So if nobody's ever tried this system out, I would encourage trying it for a one-shot just to see how it feels to run a game with like so little going on <laughs> mechanically. So I tried running that through like a dungeon just as a bit of an experiment. And the way that the players played the game when they didn't have even like, a, they didn't even have like a class to cling on to or like an attack modifier. Like when you haven't got anything like that, I think the players play differently and it, it becomes more of a game where it feels like more of the focus was on like creative problem solving and a sort of like exploration. And, and even in a weird way, there was kind of like a bit more characterful role playing because you kind of got to give your character something because you can't just think, oh, well, I'm, I'm the ranger. So everyone kind of knows what my deal is. You kind of have to give yourself a bit of identity because there's nothing there to begin with. And I, that really appealed to me. And I, but the thing that I was missing was I thought, well, is there a way that I can combine that kind of level of mechanical simplicity, but without this sort of giant void where there's like no setting at all so the problem is with search of the unknown is it relies on you already having like a bank of ideas for your character because the game's kind of giving you nothing really like other than the fact that you have a sword and a shield if you want to come up with a really creative idea for like a culture that your character is from or sort of personality traits that's all coming from you so i wanted to think about whether i could have that rules light feel but in that void still put some setting in there and some flavor and have it still feel like this is a specific world. But the rules are so light that it still feels like searches of the unknown in many ways. It still feels like you're playing a one-page game when it comes to the rules. Okay. So while exploring these one-page games or rules-like games or really any other games that you played in your history... Do you have any memorable characters or campaigns that are worth mentioning? To be honest, I played very, very rarely. I was usually running games back then. With third edition, sorry, I did play more often. I don't really remember hardly any of my third edition characters. I think the only third edition character I could remember in any sort of detail was literally when I got the book, just the player's handbook, like the DMG and the Monster Manual hadn't even come out yet. And so I convinced a friend, I was like, yeah, let's make some characters and we'll just try running a quick game. And like, I'll run the game for you and you can, you know, you can control both characters and we'll just try it out so we did that and you know he made i think a rogue and it came with this fold-out map as well the, the set that i got and i was like right so you go in a room and there's you know and there's an orc i think it might have literally been an orc guarding a chest so like the most classic starter dungeon room you can imagine and he's like right cool so i'll sneak up and like stab the orc so sneaking up fails his stealth roll and I'm like, okay so the orc notices you and the orc's gonna attack you and just rolling a critical hit for the orc and killing him in one shot and i think the fact that that was my first experience with third edition D D. well first experience with D&D was that happening I think that still resonates through like a lot of the design decisions I made with Into the Odd which I'm sure we'll get into later on but in terms of like campaigns that are ran this will be kind of obvious to anyone that's read Electric Bastion and Into the Odd I usually play or run in one shots really and part of that is because of the kind of irregular nature of how I was playing I wasn't like having the same group every week for like two years so yeah th there was lots of one shots and maybe the occasional like two or three session campaign but no I, I don't have like a sort of a big memorable campaign from my past that is one thing perhaps that i'd like to address once i'm allowed to allowed to go out and uh, and play with people at a table again <laughs> yeah well uh to your point before there's plenty of role playing going on online right now yeah there is but it's weird because like for so long that was my outlet i kind of now find it difficult i've been spoiled by being around the table you know it, it can still be good to play online on the other hand i'm also kind of like oh i've had my fill of that over the years so uh, <laughs> i am looking forward to getting back yeah, I think we'd all love to. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of people, I didn't try playing online until the pandemic started. Yeah, sure. And since then, I've discovered that while it's not the same, 
it's still satisfying. Oh yeah, it's it's a different it's a different board game essentially, and yeah, they they've both got their strengths and weaknesses for sure. Absolutely. Okay, so you started to formulate this group of rules into your own game, which would become Into the Odd. And what would you say was the initial goal with Into the Odd? So with Into the Odd, the idea of making a rule set myself was, at the time, a lot of the kind of OSR rule sets were based around basic D&D, which I didn't mind, but I didn't love it as a system. There were some bits in it that I didn't really like. And obviously, lots of people had made like hacks of their version of basic D&D. But at first, I wanted it to kind of be compatible with D&D. But then as I started working on it, the goal did kind of shift to where I thought, well, instead, even though basic D&D is pretty simple, I want to see if I can make something. And the very, very first goal was that I wanted players to be able to sit down at the table and they didn't have to have any of the rules explained to them until they needed them. So you can kind of do that with all games to some extent with various levels of satisfaction. But I really wanted to hone in on this idea that if a new player is sitting down and playing the game, they're going to roll a character. So there's one decision point in character creation in Into the Odd actually, and it's kind of optional. But essentially you're going to get a random character and you know they're going to hand you a character and that will tell you enough about the world that you can kind of grasp a little bit of the world already. And then when you start playing, the first question I sort of want them to hear is what do you do so the DM will describe a situation and say what do you do and they don't have to think about well how many actions do I have or like what thing do I roll to do this I want them to just instead think about well what am I going to do like as if they were there so a lot of the rules were kind of stripped back and a lot of things were taken out that I thought you kind of didn't necessarily need so like things like initiative there is a, a kind of initiative system but it's kind of optional things like like I say character creation was made extremely quick so that you could just get to playing the game and yeah that the initial goal was that kind of ultra accessible breaking down the barriers to entry that somebody might feel when they're sitting down to play this sort of game and then the secondary goal that kind of evolved as I was making it was as I sort of did this random character creation I, I really liked the fact that you could kind of sneak in just from like the equipment and some of the entries on the character starter package table you could sneak in a lot of the setting in the same way that in D&D if you look down the equipment list and you see holy water and like silver I think it's silver arrows or whatever it tells you something about the world if holy water exists you can already glean some bits of the setting from that and the fact that it's something you can buy tells you some other sort of things and like garlic being on the list and things like that I really liked that effect so I, my secondary goal was can I sort of imply a setting without having any pages of setting information can I just imply it through things like the equipment list through the sample monsters and like the weird magic items that you start with and the example of play and can I not have that page where it's like here is an explanation of the world and I did end up putting that page back in <laughs> which I kind of slightly regret now but I think I got pretty close to being able to do it and yeah that idea of like infusing setting into everything that's when I really thought I could make something that was going to be a little bit different to what was out there because there are games that do it but I really wanted to make that like a complete focus of the design. Okay. And what sort of aspects of that setting were you trying to imply? Could you describe those a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. I really enjoy settings that feel like they were made for the game rather than a game that felt like it was made for the setting, if you see what I mean. I think there's a reason why over the years people have struggled with games that are tied to like particular licenses. So there's been good and bad games based around like Lord of the Rings. There's been good and bad games based around Star Wars. And I think the reason that it's so hard to design well for those settings is that they were designed for a different medium. So either for, you know, novels or films. And so what I really wanted to do at the start of 
thinking about giving this world a setting is I wanted to think, well, why am I doing this? Like, what, what's the purpose of this setting existing other than just saying, oh, it's generic fantasy. So the two things that I really wanted to get in there is I wanted to have a bit more, the things that I enjoyed in D&D was I, I really enjoyed that like horror element so that there are like elements of horror in D&D, but they kind of come in weird like spikes where certain things might be very horrific and then certain things might be quite bright. But I wanted to have more of a sort of lingering horror over everything. So from there, I thought, well, if you're going to have like horrific elements, and like weird horror I think it's quite good to have the basic or rather the mundane world be a little bit more relatable I think that's why things like Call of Cthulhu work because if you're talking like early 20th century it's a relatively relatable time to our own time compared to like faux medieval fantasy because the medieval world is already so different to our world that it's hard to like necessarily relate to somebody that exists in that world so I decided to like go for a sort of industrial-ish setting sort of just after the industrial revolution because it feels like that's around the time when you know things are starting to feel more modern so you can reasonably expect people to have a job and like own a house and like things like really basic things that are like everyday things for us and having that kind of focus in a world that's a little bit more mundane meant that you can then have the weird things be a bit more weird so that there's more of a juxtaposition there so as well as the kind of industrial setting i wanted to have a horror focus and i wanted it to be i didn't want the kind of undead sort of horror that you often see in dnd i wanted something a bit different i started to bring in a bit more of like a sci-fi horror kind of element so inspiration for things like the thing and like the fly and just weird sci-fi horror ideas and those are things that always kind of stick with me and obviously like alien and things like that so the idea of combining that with kind of an industrial era setting they're the two ingredients that kind of smash together to create this kind of setting that sort of grew out of the game if you see what i mean yeah absolutely so as you started to put the game out what sort of response did you see to the setting so to start with i was always very cautious about putting a setting in there because it felt like something where in so this is going to sound really cruel but in so many games i'll be like looking through the first few pages and someone will start telling me about their world straight away before i've read any rules and I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, you get to the actual game and then you read the game. And if, and if you like the game, you might go back and read some stuff about the setting. So I was always quite cautious about doing that because I didn't want people to feel like I was trying to force anything on them. But as the sort of world started to take some identity and especially so the world is based around one huge city, that there's only one city that matters. And this is something that emerged through gameplay. Like originally there were lots of little cities, but eventually Bastion became the only city that matters. And I sort of combined all of the ideas I had for like city things into to one city and being able to make it somewhere that like it can't really be mapped it's more of like the idea of a city rather than trying to be like an authentic city with its own identity but that in itself kind of became a, a bit of an identity and the stuff that I was writing about on the blogs about Bastion people did seem to start to respond to it and enjoy it and it was interesting because the city is deliberately left quite open to interpretation so it's obviously inspired by sort of the cities that I'm familiar with so like I said I grew up near to Birmingham and now I live in Manchester and I've spent quite a bit of time in London in the UK. So those are kind of cities that have inspired it in many ways. But it's interesting because people were coming at it with different influences. So people that lived in different countries uh, or even in different regions of the UK were like sort of getting little ideas from the cities that were near them and saying like, well, could this fit into Bastion? And I was trying to make it really clear that like, yeah, if, if you if you got an idea for a city thing, find a way to fit it in. And it all exists as one kind of idea of a city. And it's a, you know, it's a big mess and everything's here and everything's complicated. But that can be how a city feels a lot of the time. It, it was really exciting to see people actually kind of wanting to be involved with that kind of creative process in a way and, and wanting to like make their own version of it. And that's when I knew that I'd sort of succeeded on that front, when I could see that people wanted to be involved with the setting rather than tolerating the setting to get to the game, which I think can happen sometimes. 
Yeah, I think you're right about that. And we'll obviously talk more about the setting when we discuss Electric Bastion Land, where it's more fleshed out. Yeah, yeah. So as far as Into the Odd, then, what overall design decisions did you make to really define Into the Odd? So, like I said, one of the big ones was that this idea that the setting was just kind of infused into the game rather than existing as like a separate set of pages. And I haven't seen many games that do that kind of combination of having like very, very minimal rules, but still having all that setting because the the games that I was talking about before, things like Microlight 20 and searches of the unknown by design they're kind of like one or two page things that are kind of generic so that was kind of the big one but then in terms of specifics i think if i'm going to get into specific mechanics there's very few types of roles in the game but i think each one of them does something that really enforces the setting so your saving throws which are like what one of the two main types of role you're ever going to be making so like if you're doing something dangerous you need to make a saving throw if there's going to be consequences and all you're doing is you're rolling a d20 and you're trying to get equal or under your ability score so if if you've got a strength of 11 you're trying to get 11 or less on a d20 and there are never any modifiers to that. It's always just a static save. There's no difficulty class. There's no saying, well, you're trying to lift an especially large rock, which is always like the bad example that people use in like examples of play or like climbing a fence or things like that. But yeah, there's no difficulty class. If you're making a save, it's because it's something dangerous. And the reason that I wanted to do that, a lot of the game is about risk and reward, but I wanted people to have the information in front of them so they knew how risky something was. So if you know that your character has a dexterity of 14, you know that you're always going to be trying to roll a 14 or less if you're doing anything like sneaky or athletic and i think that decision really helped with people kind of wanting to take risks and on the one hand people wanting to take risks when they know that the odds are in their favor but on the other hand you also know when the things aren't in your favor so it encourages creative solutions so if you know that you've got to sneak past somebody and you've got a dexterity of seven you're not going to spend a lot of time chasing like plus one here or plus two there or engaging with the mechanics instead you're going to be trying to do something creative that bypasses the mechanics and again that's when a lot of sort of interesting play comes out so i think that mechanic does really drive a particular type of play and the other one is the way that combat works and this is probably like the single most unusual mechanic in the game i guess i mean there's only a couple of mechanics in the game really but in combat you essentially always damage your opponent for the most part so there's no rolling to hit so if you've got a weapon that does d8 damage you you roll a d8 and you cause that much damage to your target and that's it and if they still have hit points left after you damage them then the implication is that you've not hit them particularly cleanly so you might have just worn them down a little bit or stunned them or something like that but if you take them below zero hp that's when you actually have started wounding them and the damage starts coming off their strength instead and at that point they're going to have to start making saves to avoid critical damage and avoid being taken out of the fight essentially and when people first hear about this they think it's going to be some incredibly bloody brutal system where people are getting you know stabbed to death in like a single attack and there's nothing you can do about it but there are a couple of sort of nuances to it that make it work a bit differently to that so your hp will come back with a short rest which is just like a few minutes and a drink of water so it's kind of like between combat i guess all of your hp will come back so your hp is kind of more like a buffer that you know that you've got every combat of sort of how long you can fight and then your the damage that comes off your strength is like the real damage that's going to take a long time to recover and the effect this has is it's weird because you're never going to be at that point where you've been worn down to like your last few hp and you think oh well we better go there's nothing i can do all i can do is go and rest somewhere now for a week you've always got like at least a small buffer of damage that you can take but it works both ways so you know that if you can outnumber an opponent or if you can get the first strike in on them 
you might just be able to beat them. And it becomes less a case of like, what do I do in this fight to win the fight? And it becomes more a case of going in with a plan or even deciding if like, do we even want to fight? Because you know that you're going to be taking this damage and you know that you're going to be causing damage. So I mentioned earlier about that weird first time I played third edition and my friend's character got like one shotted by an orc in the first room. And it's kind of all goes back to that because I, I didn't want that to happen. I wanted there to be these dramatic moments where somebody gets taken down, but I didn't want them to just be like dead straight away. And here it makes things, weirdly, it makes things more predictable in combat and it makes things a little bit less chaotic in a way. So you know this damage is coming both ways and it becomes more a case of working out whether you actually want to go through with it. So yeah, that created a nice situation where people would think about combat. They would always think about it. They would never take it as assumed as like, yeah, we're going to fight this orc because of course we are, because that's the game. When people knew that the damage was coming, they would always think, well, is this worth it to me? So yeah, that's probably like the single biggest sort of rulesy thing in the game that I guess influences the play. Yeah, and that is a very interesting mechanic. And it makes sense because the hit points are, as you said, only a buffer. It's how much you can kind of get roughed up before it actually starts to affect you. It's the ability score damage that actually matters in your yeah. game. And how do you recover that damage again? Uh, in Into the Art, it's like a week's rest somewhere. So, so essentially, it's between adventures is the kind of implication. Like, you're going to go and have some actual downtime somewhere. And it's not like you can just easily pick up a potion or something to recoup this. No, no. As far as I'm aware, I could be wrong. Because um, there are sort of, I mean, we can get to the Arcana if you want. Because that's kind of the other interesting thing i guess about the system is the way that kind of magic works i guess i always wanted to have like i always loved the weird magic items in DD. things like the portable hole the immovable rod and you know like decanter of endless water all these magic items where you can just explain it and someone gets it so if i explain an immovable rod to someone they immediately understand how it works and they probably start to get ideas of how they could use it straight away they don't need to know what is the dc to break the immovable rod or things like that the core of the idea is cool in itself so i always wanted to have things like that in the game and yeah i kind of reached a point where all magic in the game is kind of follows that idea so you don't have spells and stuff you might have an arcanum which is your magic magic item i guess and the thing i wanted to avoid with them is i wanted to avoid things like healing potions because again it fits a certain mode of play but it wasn't what i wanted to have here i didn't want it to be like oh well all we'll do is we'll bring enough healing potions that we can just fight i wanted combat to always be a choice so the magic is always a lot weirder than just being able to you know recover your strength by drinking this potion okay so strength is one of the few ability scores that you went with you decided to go with a very abbreviated list would you be able to speak to that a little bit yeah so as i was sort of continuing to work on it the big sort of idea that i had was i should sort of always try chopping something away and then see if we need it so originally i knew that i wanted to get rid of things like intelligence because i didn't have like a traditional magic systems and there wasn't a skill system there was no real use for intelligence here as like the magic stat so i was like i'm getting rid of that and i just wanted to see how tight i get the list down so eventually we ended up with strength which which kind of includes constitution because the thing that I always found was like when you rolled a character I wanted all the combinations to be interesting and when you roll a D&D &D character you sometimes get like a weird situation where you would roll like a high strength and a low constitution and it would feel a little bit odd like I know there are ways to do that but you kind of have to really like know about what the ability scores are meant to be to understand that so I, I wanted each ability score to be like bigger and include more things so strength includes like all of your physical fitness essentially and like your physical raw fortitude dexterity is kind of anything to do with like 
movement or precision. And then willpower is anything kind of internal. It's kind of the weirdest one in there because it went through a lot of changes before I settled on will. Like for a while, there was an intelligence score. I think intelligence was used for things like missile attacks for a while. Like um, I guess sort of the, the idea was like accuracy with a gun is kind of, I guess, more of a mental than a physical things in some ways. But I, I kind of moved away from that. And eventually I, I settled on will as the kind of mental score, if you like. But I mean, as we get to Into the Odd, I, I did change it for Into the Odd. It was the one thing that I changed. And I changed that to Charisma. So even though that's what ended up in print, I was never like 100% happy with that as like the third ability score. But yeah, I, I wanted them to be kind of big and chunky and each of them was quite obvious. So that if you got a high dexterity, you knew what that meant. And if you got a low strength, it was very obvious what that actually meant to you. Okay. How are those abilities determined? Yeah. Yeah. So character creation, like I said, in Into the Odd, it's almost 100% random. The, the only piece of input you have in terms of the actual like mechanics of what you're getting is you roll 3d6 down the line. So you get 3d6 strength, 3d6 dexterity, 3d6 willpower. And in Into the Odd, you can swap two of them round. If you've got a high dexterity and a low strength, you could think, well, I want to be a strong person. So I'm going to swap those two round. And yeah, that's it. And then you get your d6 hit points and that combination sort of you look up that combination on a chart and that gives you your starter package which is like maybe three or four pieces of equipment and maybe like a little note about something else about you and that gives you essentially everything that you're going to get to start the game with i said before that the game isn't deadly but it it is relatively easy to die like it it does happen (laughs) certainly compared to sort of later editions of DD but it's 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 not surprise deadly you should always kind of see your death coming to some extent but when you die i wanted it to be quick to get you back to the table so it's very quick to just roll those ability scores and and grab the starter package sure and then just to reiterate the one choice that players do have to make because they are receiving that starter package and everything is whether or not they want to flip around a couple of their ability scores yeah you can flip two and and in electric bastion land i actually got rid of that (laughs) so it's actually even less i think the reason i got rid of it is like i was saying about sort of chopping things away like i always try removing something everything has to justify its place there even if it's relatively small and i think i just thought well i'm not going to bother explaining this i think i was playing with like some brand new people some friends i already knew but people who'd never played this sort of game before and i think i just noticed when i was explaining it to them i didn't bother explaining the part about swapping because i didn't want to confuse them so i was just like yeah so you roll your scores write them down and that's what you've got and i sort of didn't miss it i think it, it created like a weird bit of pressure for the very first bit of the game when you're rolling those scores you're making what might feel like a very important decision and sometimes i would say it to people and i would say yeah so you can swap two of those scores if you want and then someone might say oh well i i want to be this so what ability score should i swap and then it felt like it was getting them weirdly engaged with a part of the game that i didn't want them to get engaged with i wanted them to get more excited about what was their character going to be rather than like what are the specifics of these scores so yeah that did eventually get the chop okay as far as choosing what their character should be there really is no specific class system or race system and into the odd instead you've mentioned we have this starter package table which is really a genius element especially for one shots but could also easily be used for a longer campaign so if we could discuss the table a little more what decisions went into its creation and is this something you've seen in practice elsewhere or something you originated so i'm very open that i borrow things from all over the place like the whole idea of having combat where you don't roll to hit i definitely saw that on a blog somewhere someone was talking about doing that with i think it would have been fourth edition DD or maybe third edition someone on a DD blog was saying oh I've, I've tried running the game without hit rolls and here's what happened and then they decided they didn't want to do anything with it they were like eh, it kind of worked but maybe not 
And that's kind of what sparked that. And I think every other idea has been sparked by some post on some blog somewhere. And I always try and like give credit when I can remember, but I, I can never remember who wrote that thing about removing the to hit rolls. But I think this one did kind of come out of, I don't think, I think this one just kind of sprung out of my head at some point. This is one of the few things that I might actually claim some kind of originality for. I had seen lists before where someone on G plus on Google plus had posted as kind of a way to speeding up character creation. They posted a list where you had all the D&D classes and then you had all the sort of numbers you could roll for your starting like gold and then like a sort of a standard pack. So if you're a cleric and you got, I don't know, 50 gold pieces in your starting money, it just gave you like a typical 50 GP worth of gear for a cleric. And I liked that idea because it was like, I liked that you didn't get full decision over what you got. You just kind of got, here's a load of stuff, work it out. And I liked that you could sneak some like implied setting into that. So yeah, the idea with these was very much that each one should walk a line between implied something about your character but not outright saying okay here is what you are so i'm looking at the list now so i can see that let's say you rolled your highest ability score was 15 and you had 5 hp then your character would get a sword and a dagger a magnifying glass and a lost eye now when you have a magnifying glass my mind immediately goes to like detective i guess but i guess they could also be like a jeweler or like someone who works with like i don't know clockwork or something like that it gives you a little spark of an idea but i'm not you're going to put in the box okay you are a detective and this is what you get and that's what i tried to do with each of them each of them tried to be like a sort of a little spark for an idea rather than being a super generic set of equipment for like a fighter or being too specific that it it feels like a class and yeah and with electric bastion land that this kind of blew up into the idea of like well what if i could do this for an entire book what if i could have what if i could have like over 100 of these sort of exploded out into like a full page thing so yeah that was kind of the idea behind that and and sort of how it exploded into electric bastion land really okay and so the table and into the odd is rather extensive and electric bastion land obviously even more so do these ideas come to you relatively easily and is there any sort of scaling of the packages going to people with lower scores because one axis of the table is your highest score but it doesn't matter you get the same package whether that score is strength or it's willpower yeah yeah I guess, how did you come up with all these delightful little starting packages initially? So the, the sort of the loose idea was that if you roll really high, so if you had an ability score of 18, because that's the thing, there's, there's no balancing between characters. So me and you could both sit down to play and you could roll, you know, for your three ability scores, you could get like 18, 16, 15, and I could get five, five, and seven and some players might feel put out by that certainly but i kind of wanted to encourage the attitude of well you know maybe that spurs me on to be a bit more creative and maybe that spurs you on to be a little bit more reckless and in practice i do see a lot of people that roll these good characters often end up dying first because if we're going on into a dungeon together and they're the two characters we've got you can bet you're going in first because you've got all those sort of added advantages but i did want to have a little bit of sort of respite for people that roll poorly and a little bit of a stab in the back for people that roll well so the higher your scores uh, you tend to get something bad so you might get that you are illiterate or a fugitive or you might have that you have no nose or like an ugly mutation and if you roll uh, very low ability scores you're much more likely to get one of these arcana which are like the magic items that i talked about like an immovable rod or something like that kind of thing so i kind of worked around that basis and then kind of filled in the middle the thing is that those results in the middle kind of this is more of a thing with electric bastion where i had a little bit 
bit more space to like fill out those ideas. But if you roll really high on your ability scores and I roll really low, then our characters are already kind of interesting. So those results, there's a little bit less pressure on them almost. But if I roll for my ability scores like strength 11, dex 10, will 11, then it's kind of a very boring character because it's just like an average person. So with Electric Bastion and especially, I, I try to make those middle results where you put the interesting stuff, if you like, because the players that get that result, they need something to grasp onto. So yeah, it, working around that kind of framework, then I, I really did just try and find big lists of stuff. So there was lots of thinking about items that would be useful on an adventure. So there's lots of things on a typical like D&D list, like, you know, a crowbar or you know, fire oil. But then I also just, I spent a lot of time like looking on like hardware websites, like a DIY shop for like tools. So I ended up with things like a portable ram, like <laughs> manacles. There's a lot of animals as well because having animals is always fun. So having a talking parrot, that's one of the better things you can get certainly. And like grappling hook, barbed wire, protective gloves, marbles, glue. These are things that if you're only getting three items and you get like a sword, a pistol and some glue, I feel like if that's me, I'm going to get excited about using that glue. And I'm going to try and find a way to, I'm going to make this glue useful one way or another. So yeah, that was kind of the spirit I was going for with these objects. Excellent. Yeah. And it does create a lot of interest and you're right. You want to use that weird extra thing that you have. Yeah, definitely. You know, somebody in the game that we were playing got a game set. And so he's like, yeah, all right, yeah. so I got like a chessboard, and I'm going to throw that. We encountered something weird we didn't know what it was he threw a chess piece at it you know? like, <laughs> i thought you were gonna say like he convinced this thing to like play a game of chess but uh yeah throwing the chessboard at someone is a, a blunter approach for sure well, it wasn't really a person it was a black hole kind of and he just said he threw a game piece into it it was more we were amused that he was using it for something because we had forgotten that he had it yeah, yeah. it was a module that we were testing out sure. not one of your modules i don't think did you end up doing a lot of modules for into the odd well the, the thing is that i wanted to do with into the odd is so there is like a sample adventure in the book and i kind right, of wanted okay. it to be like an all-in-one but no I, I i have done some little modules that i've sort of put out as like free or pay what you want pdfs but no module design has never been like to be completely honest, it's never been like a strength of mine, I don't think. I feel like I can plan a decent game to play at a table, but I don't know how effective I am at like writing it out in a way for other people to run. I find that quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So yeah, with this, I did include as a sample dungeon, a wilderness area around it and like a small town because I, want, I wanted you to have enough to get stuck into like a few sessions of a game, certainly. So there's a little bit of kind of a sandbox area at the back of the book. But yeah, I feel like I'm more equipped to give people advice and tools to make their own games. So so I did want to have the module, but also at the back of the book, there's just the, I've got to make sure I get this right because I always get them mixed up. The odd pendium is at the back of this book and mm -hmm. the, the odd endum is at the back of Electric Vastionum. But the, the odd pendium is just a load of random tables. And I kind of wanted to make that like enough that people, if they did run out of content, they could use this as kind of the starting point to make their own modules. So there's a lot of things like a weird creature inspiration table where you you roll on a few tables and like combine the results. There's like, what's this street like? What's the quickest route across town? And these are like D1 100 tables i've always felt like i would rather give people the tools to make their own stuff rather than try and write like a brilliant published adventure because it's, it's really hard like it's a real skill for people that can do it well i feel like it's it's so difficult to get your idea onto the page in that format i find it sure but i think those random tables are a great way to do that i think that they would inspire some very interesting adventures and i think that they'd be very helpful in that regard could you describe for us a little bit about the adventures that you ran during playtesting and also what sort of adventures you envisioned people would use this game for? So I always enjoyed just like the dungeon crawl, like the kind of the classic 
go to a terrible place and try and get some treasure. So during playtesting, I did sort of write a lot of my own dungeons. I think a lot of the playtesting was based around like a big mega dungeon I did around like a mountain and with lots of different entrances and like all these different levels that kind of connected like a bit of a maze. And that was really good fun because it kind of really honed in on the like creative problem solving thing I was trying to get in there. I did playtest with a few like classic D&D modules. Like I'm sure I did at least one with Keep on the Borderlands. And I definitely tried at least once to do like tomb of horrors in there but as you go further into tomb of horrors there's a lot of like weirdly DD specific stuff in there like stuff related to like specific spells and things like that so that didn't quite work out but yeah because i was mainly testing it with one shots i do have a guilty pleasure for sort of a funhouse dungeon like where each room is just like a silly puzzle or a silly trap that is like a proper guilty pleasure of mine i'm not so much into like the the really like strong narrative driven campaign i like it when a narrative emerges around like an adventure but i do primarily like you know here's a weird dungeon see how far you can get okay interesting so during the playtesting you did use some classic modules did you then change around the starter packages and things so that it was more traditional fantasy or did you stick with the sort of industrial victorian into the odd setting that you have have here well the thing is in the sort of osr stuff that was happening on google plus at the time it was quite sort of common for people to just like bring characters between games and lots of people were running like weirdly different settings so there was a lot of like weird fantasy stuff going on anyway so a lot of the games weren't really you know even though i say it's keep on the borderlands and like some of these traditional fantasy things a lot of the things people were running were just like really weird fantasy stuff so i don't think i ever wrote up like a sort of different set of starter packages i think people that wanted to roll a new character would always roll one using the into the odd table but if a player came in with like their oh i've got a level three wizard from a bx campaign i would sort of say okay yeah we'll, we'll work out a way to make it work and you kind of like do a little quick on the spot conversion and you pick like maybe their three most useful spells and turn them into arcana so that they could actually carry them around as like items i always try to maintain its own identity while still like accepting these other characters that were kind of coming from other worlds i guess i just assumed that they were coming from like some distant part of the setting that hadn't been defined where there's still people like pretending to be wizards and things like that Okay, excellent. So during this playtesting with these various characters and everything, what sort of changes did you find that you had to make to the system? Were there any failed experiments or things that you had to redact? Oh yeah, there's there's tons. The, the game did change a lot in terms of like specifics. So it took a while to get to that point where I sort of really went in on that the kind of no rolling to hit system where you just roll damage. So originally, people's ability scores were were kind of a lot more important. So if you had a strength of 15 and somebody is attacking you and let's say that they are strength eight, you used to still have like your ability modifier. So they would have if you just subtract 10. So if you have an ability score of 15, your modifier is plus five. So let's say you're being attacked by a strength 10 enemy and your strength five, they would be trying to hit a 15 because that's your number and they would be rolling with plus zero because that's their modifier so that, that in itself is already a little bit clunky so i'm glad that that went but the big effect that this had was i still wanted to have combat be quick and decisive so if the character that's attacking you failed their role then you would hit them instead and you know there's, there's lots of games that use this kind of opposed combat system where sort of both combatants roll and like the winner hits the loser but the situation it created in into the odd because the ability scores could be quite far apart like the other full scale of like 3 to 18 if you've got like a lucky 16 strength character you could just kind of wade in and like just wait for things to attack you 
and then just like hit them. And it it created a very like cinematic, like Conan experience where you'd send your fighter in and they'd just be chopping down like dozens of enemies. But I knew that it wasn't what I wanted. So that ended up going. And all the other big changes were mainly just simplifications and just like refinement and, and thinking, do I need this to be this complicated? So it used to be that the way that your like arcana worked so your magic was like each item that you carried that might be an arcadum would have like a number of different spells stored within it. So it was more like a spell book. And there was like, you had to bond to it. And then there were like, you had to roll to use the spell effectively. And there was just a lot of mechanics. And I eventually just reached a point where I was like, well, no, I, j- I just want them to be able to do the thing. Like if you have if you have the decanter of endless water, you can just take the lid off and pour it. And it's up to you to make sure you use it effectively. And in doing that, it makes you design those items really carefully because you can't just have a wand of fireball that fires fireballs and you know it kind of like is an unlimited fireball one like it just wouldn't be interesting because all of a sudden they've got something that's far too useful so it means that you have to create things that are a lot more specific or a lot more like a mixed benefit if you like so yeah that stripping away a lot of those rules is perhaps the biggest set of challenges when you remove those rules kind of really making sure that what you've got left works with that kind of minimalist framework was the biggest challenge i'd say okay and did you say originally it was a system with modifiers and you eventually just decided to go roll under abilities Score? Yeah, so the difficulty class of what you were doing was kind of defined by who was opposing you. So again, to use combat as an example, no, no, let, let's use like stealth as an example. So if I had a dexterity of 12 and you had a will of 14, then I'd be rolling a d20. I'd be adding two to it because that's my modifier. And I'd be trying to get 14 because that's your score. And it worked okay. And it kind of, it made sense on a logical level because you were like, well, yeah, of course it's more difficult to sneak past somebody that's more perceptive. And of course it's more difficult to like wrestle someone to the ground if they're stronger. But I wanted to see if I could get rid of it. And there was kind of like a post that I wrote about this on the blog like years ago. It's called like in favor of static saves or something like that. And it's a topic that I've still written about a lot because even though it's simpler, it's not necessarily easier in some ways because sometimes it's nice to have that crutch of saying like i'm just going to make this a difficult task whereas when all you have is the ability score so if you have dexterity 12 and i know that whenever you're making a dexterity save you're going to be trying to roll a 12 or less then as the gm it means you have to really think about well am i going to call for a save in this situation and how am i going to reflect that this is a more difficult situation so it could be that there's higher stakes it could be that if it's an easier situation it could just be that you say well no you're not going to need to roll at all and there's more interesting ways around it i think than just having a more difficult number so that's where that situation kind of arose from it's something i'm still sort of working around now really and like i wrote a thing about it last year about difficulty in bastion land and yeah i like it a lot but i can see why it takes a little bit of an adjustment of like outlook to be able to to really make it work Okay. Do you have any examples from playtesting of when you knew the game was working or anything in the game mechanically or otherwise that happened to exceed your expectations when actually in play? I think when I was able to bring it to the table and play it with people who'd never played a role-playing game before, I think that they're the times when I know that I've kind of succeeded on my goal. And that's the thing, like this is and I'm talking about it a lot in terms of like comparison to D&D, but this isn't intended to like replace a traditional like big chunky role playing game. But it's more that I wanted it to be something where you could pick it up with anyone. So like as an extreme example, when I was trying to like explain this to my parents who were like in their 60s, you know, they always knew that I like I was into these games when I was growing up, but they just kind of loosely tolerated it. And obviously they weren't really interested in these things. But when I was like saying I was working on my own, they said, oh, well, you know, you should show us how it works. And when you 
can make it work for someone who's, you know, spent 60 years of their life never knowing about what these sorts of games are. I was expecting it to be a somewhat excruciating experience, like explaining how the game works, but it, it really does just like, it just opens up. And when you sort of move to that thing of saying like, well, yeah, so what do you do? And you see a sort of brand new player engaging with that. And when you see them sort of realize like, well, yeah, I, wait, I can try, I can try anything. That's when I feel like it works. When I see that kind of light come on and they're thinking about that rather than even what's on their character sheet. Awesome. So you tested it out and then you eventually obviously released into the odd out into the world. Did you do that just by PDF or was it in print right away? So Paolo from Lost Pages Publishing, I forget whether I got in touch with Paolo or Paolo got in touch with me, but like got in touch and we ended up publishing it through Lost Pages and doing like a print run. And yeah, I remember it was bizarre because I expected it to be something where it had always just been like a thing I'd put out as a free PDF up until then. And then I thought, well, no, let's see if we can do it as like a, a print thing. And I remember like on the night that we released it, Paolo was just messaging me saying like, sold two copies. And then he said, like, oh, sold sold three copies, sold sold six copies. And you know, the, the numbers didn't get like massive. It, it doesn't end with me selling a million copies. But like, it was bizarre seeing that people would actually want to grab this. I mean, it surprises me whenever I sell a book anyway, to be honest. But like back then it was a real surprise. And when I sort of got got that as a print thing that's when it felt more real definitely for sure and yeah it's, you can make all the pdfs in the world but there's there is something about like holding a physical book in your hand i agree i do have a lot of games on pdf but the games that i have in physical form i'm much more familiar with because you get to hold it and page through it and it just kind of invites that sort of activity as opposed to a pdf which other than having a very nice search feature yeah is- yeah more difficult to uh, actually look over yeah, definitely. i feel okay so you released into the odd through lost pages and it sounds like right away we had a pretty positive response especially from the osr community yeah and right? it's i mean you know fingers crossed it's been largely positive since then and i think what was the best kind of feedback i got was when people said that it clicked for them kind of what they'd been looking for because i wanted to make something that didn't already exist and i wasn't expecting people to say you know oh move over D into the odd is the new game the new hot game for everyone to play like that wasn't what I was trying to do and you know I think one of the best things I got was when people would message me saying like hey I you know I've always been interested in things like D&D I picked up Into the Odd and played it and I got my friends who've never played this sort of thing to play it and they all really enjoyed it and you know we could understand it it was simple and we enjoyed the setting and especially when people start to latch onto it and sort of start writing their own thing I'd always rather make something that like a small number of people really love than try and make something that like tries to fill every niche and tries to be everything to everybody. And yeah, that, that's something I've really tried to like stick to in the years since then. But yeah, when you see those people that really like it, for me, that's the most kind of satisfying feedback you can get is sort of, it's obviously just clicked for someone and it's filled the gap. They really wanted to have a game that did something like this. Well, hopefully somebody says that about this podcast. I'm <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Thank you. Need all the help we can get. Okay, so obviously when Into the Odd arrived, people started hacking it. Did you start seeing that relatively quickly? Again, that that was really cool because the idea that somebody would want to use this as like a, a springboard for their own ideas was really cool. And, you know, going back to the starter packages, I think that was the first thing that I saw people really doing because it's a very obvious, like it's a table of 60 results. So it's kind of like begging for people to just make their own. And yeah, some people did some really interesting things. I think the one that really kind of most impressed me was Patrick Stewart did Silent Titans, which was like an adventure module that's kind of largely mechanical 
mechanics free, but then it's kind of loosely based around the into the art mechanics. And for his, he had it be like 60 specific characters. So rather than, you know, I said that I wanted to be vague and say like, oh, well, this person's got a magnifying glass, so maybe they're a detective. He would have like a specific result that is like, no, 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 you are, here is your name. You are this detective and you have this and this and this. And it's just interesting seeing people that go in a different direction and sort of make it their own. I think that's what's always really cool to me. So yeah, Silent Titans was the one that really leapt out at me as being especially cool. Yeah, I mean, it must have been kind of a thrill seeing other people developing modules and stuff. Were people reaching out to you asking if they could work on projects for Into the Odd, that sort of thing? Oh yeah, almost straight away people were like, oh, I want to make my own hack of this. What's the deal? And I kind of hadn't really thought of it. And it's literally taken me until last year to get like a kind of a very loose license thing written up. So if you search for Mark of the Odd, you can now make your game with Mark of the Odd around a framework of Into the Odd. And people really wanted that. And yeah, that kind of started happening straight away, but it definitely sort of picked up over the years that's the thing i think because you know it's a niche within a niche within a niche like (laughs) this really small little game so it definitely took a few years for it to kind of build up and really sort of catch on with people so i think every year i probably had more people asking me whether they could make something for this game It's, it's definitely snowballed since then okay you had mentioned was it called silent titans silent titans yeah Did you end up getting a chance to play that? Or have you played any of the hacks of your own game at all? I don't know, actually. Now I think about it. I think the problem is I still don't play that often. I play more often than I used to. But in general, if I'm playing like around a table, I'm often playing with new people because I kind of go to like a local club near me and I, and I quite enjoy sort of meeting new people there. And so I'm often playing with like a new group. So I'll run something quite straightforward for them. But if I'm running something for more familiar people, I'm often like testing something out myself. I've always got something I want to test. So I very rarely get the opportunity to use other people's content because I'm always too busy like testing out whatever stupid thing I'm working on next, basically. Okay. So you published Into the Odd and you said it was sort of a niche game, but it had a very positive response, especially in the OSR community. It gets a lot of traction and is a very well-loved game for a variety of reasons, but you continue to develop content for it. And at what point did you decide that you wanted to sequate it? As soon as like I'd put this book out straight away I was like well what do I want to do next it worked and I couldn't believe it had worked so I was like right well it it works I can make a book like what book shall I make next so there were all sorts of ideas so originally I was like well it would be good to just have a bigger library of content like more monsters more setting information and just more optional stuff there was the idea of doing like a kind of odd world compendium I think I was calling it at the time and I did start writing that and the problem is it, it did kind of just feel like a bit of a a mishmash of like ideas that should be blog posts so I started like putting them out as blog posts instead and I thought well I can always compile these into a book and I knew that I wanted to do something because I, I could see that there was room for something else like alongside this for people that wanted more but I didn't want to replace Into the Odd because I think it's like a small book with a very simple idea that's kind of self-contained I think it serves its purpose and so I thought well what would I want if I'm ever in doubt about what to do I'm always thinking well what product do I wish existed like if I could just magic it up next to me right now. And I thought, well, people seem to like the setting. So I knew that I wanted to do more about the setting and kind of like expand on it a bit without sort of creating a canon because that isn't what I wanted to do. And people were really latching onto this idea of the starter packages. So I thought, well, what if we expand that idea and just have a load of extra starting package options so that when you play it into the odd, you know, 20 times, you've seen most of the character packages, like you want something new. And then I think like so many of my ideas, it started as kind of like a, 
a stupid what if where I was like, could I expand these out so that each result had like its own sub tables and each one was an entire page? And yeah, that's kind of what happened. So it became a big 300 odd page hardback book where over 200 of those pages are essentially starter packages that are fleshed out and I, I still didn't want to like have a load of classes and races and like traditional D&D stuff but yeah I wanted to be able to expand and explain the world a little bit so this idea came through where I was going to have slightly more specific results for each of these starter packages so rather than just having like I said a magnifying glass instead I'm going to create a page for if you roll this result instead maybe you are a failed detective and then you have a number of subtables you can roll on so that even if you get this career twice in like two consecutive games they're going to be slightly different so yeah that's how it kind of morphed into electric bastion and and its focus on these sort of failed careers if you like absolutely so as you said you didn't want to replace into the odd it's not a replacement for into the odd it takes place sort of after into the odd in some ways is that correct yeah so it was really hard to like pitch it because i wanted to make it clear that this isn't like me saying well here's the second edition and it's difficult because in some ways it is and in some ways it isn't if people ask i call it a sequel but the real reason is i wanted it to do something different to Into the Odd and I wanted it to exist alongside so originally if Into the Odd had like a bigger rule set I might have not even included the rules in the game I might have just had the like additional content but the fact is like the rules of Into the Odd fit on two pages so early on I knew that I was going to include the rules because I thought there's no way I'm going to make you know a big hardback book and then not include the two rules that, to the two pages that you need to play the game so i was like it's definitely going to be standalone but yeah the system is largely unchanged and whenever people ask whether it's like a replacement it sounds really mercenary i, I wouldn't say go out and buy both but i would say certainly look at both because they're doing slightly different things and with electric bastion land it is just a bit of a more indulgent experience if you like it's like it's had a double dip of setting really i wanted to take what i did with into the yard and say look what if I can just really go wild with the setting and really dive into this world and talk about how to run this world in a bit more detail and look at all of the different types of people that exist in this world. So yeah, it's like a double dipped sandwich compared to the uh, Into the Odds <laughs> sort of more restrained approach. A double dipped sandwich. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm not, are you talking about like the sandwiches that you like dip in like a broth kind of thing? You know, I, I said I said it out loud and then I was like, I'm not entirely sure what a double dipped sandwich is. I'm going to stand by it. No, I think it's like a, isn't it like a New Orleans thing, like you dip a sandwich in gravy or something. I, I may be talking complete nonsense. The French dip. Yes, French dip. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, okay. The, yeah, the French will take... Yeah, well, New Orleans, you're right. Absolutely. I've had it where you dip in like a beef broth, but I perceived it as a French thing. I wasn't sure if, if you had something like... I mean, that does yeah. sound like, you know, wonderfully <laughs> so British. So Into the Odd is, is a dry baguette, uh, which is still delicious in its own way. Yeah, Electric Bastion Line, it's been, it's been dipped into some kind of gravy. Okay. I'm going to use that next time someone asks me. It, it won't make any sense. Excellent. All right. <laughs> Double dip. <laughs> well, the thing is, you know, on this side of the pond, like you can say just about anything confidently by you. I mean, you, Chris, British can say anything sure. confidently <laughs> and I'll just assume that it makes sense to somebody. Yeah, you, oh, could, yeah. you could just be saying total nonsense. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, that sounds lovely. Uh, but, and I love that. I love the regionalisms and the differences. Uh, anyway, sorry. Back to the games. No, no, that's cool. So, so as far as this gravy that you ended up dipping into the odd into, what sort of decisions did you make in that setting? It is a slightly different setting though, right? Yeah. So the time skip, it kind of happened organically, but then I also gave it a bit of a kick because I said that into the odd is kind of based around a kind of industrial era, which I did like. But then I noticed kind of when I was doing things, especially to do with the city of Bastion, I was really enjoying like the modernity of it and like the fact that 
bits of it could kind of feel a bit like something you would still see in a city today. And as a kind of contrast to deep country, which is like everywhere outside of Bastion, which is kind of like rural and a little bit stuck in the past. And sort of organically, my own version of Bastion that I was running games in, it kind of started to feel a bit more like maybe 19th century or even like early 20th century. So I thought, well, why don't I use this as an opportunity to give the setting a bit of a twist and say, okay, well, Into the Art is its kind of industrial era and electric Bastion land, hence the name, which is also like a ridiculous pun. We're going to kick things forward to the electrical age as a kind of very broad thing. So early 20th century-ish. The idea being that you might have a radio, but it's kind of a bit fancy that you do have a radio. And sort of most things that you can imagine today can exist in this world, but they're going to be very old-fashioned versions of it. So if you really want to have something resolving around computers and an internet, then you can create a kind of, you know, 1920s version of like the difference engine, but like connected to an internet. You know, it gives you a bit more freedom to mess around and create some kind of interesting ideas. So having the electric side of things, it creates a kind of very evocative feel of a city that is entering into something and a city that is changing and it's like an exciting time. And there was some of that with like the industrial stuff in Bastionland, but also the industrial era is a little bit kind of grim in terms of its aesthetics and stuff anyway like i say that as someone who lives in a so manchester is very much tied to the industrial revolution so there's a lot of artifacts of the industrial age here and um there's some grim stuff going on around that time and i wanted to have a a city that felt a little bit more like it had to use a really bad pun had like the spark of life about it and like excitement and like a little bit of that kind of the jazz age kind of thing coming in so yeah that's where the kind of electric thing came in and then that kind of spun out to a more literal take so i mentioned about deep country being everywhere that exists outside of bastion land and that kind of i thought well if bastion is moving forwards maybe deep country is like moving backwards and the further you get away from bastion it's almost literally like you're traveling through time so if you go far enough from the city you might feel like you're in more of a medieval setting or even going back further you know it might feel like you've gone back in time like centuries and again going back to the idea of a setting serving the game it gives you a lot of freedom because if if you really want to use this adventure that you've got that kind of feels a bit more medieval then if you're doing an electric bastion campaign then yeah stick your characters stick them on a boat and have them travel a few days into deep country and maybe they've found this kind of area that is much more feudal and they're all going around with swords and they don't believe that bastion exists or anything like that it was trying to balance the idea of having a setting that had its own flavor and had its own identity but you could kind of put anything in there and it would make sense and that's sort of the direction that the setting kind of went in and that was sort of the balance that was really trying hard to walk with it okay excellent and something else about the setting that i wanted to make sure that we mentioned is that it is a very british setting you even use pounds and things like that that's a very important part of the aesthetic yeah so with that in mind are there any artifacts you'd mentioned living in manchester and london and there being artifacts of the industrial revolution around both of those cities yeah yeah are there any of those artifacts in particular that we could find in Into the Odd or Electric Bastion Land? I tried to avoid specifics. I think that the two sort of biggest things that really appeal to me, I think this is just because I was like a weird child that I, I was really like a little bit obsessed with the London Underground. Like whenever we would go down to London and go on the tube, there's something about like the map and like there's like a weird romance to the tube, I think, right here. I don't know if that's just me. There's kind of like a weird marvel to it. So the, the biggest kind of reference to a real world city is the the 
fact that the other third of the setting, if you like, is called the underground. And it's like the underground that exists beneath everything and connects everything. And yeah, large chunks of that are kind of very much inspired by the London underground. But also the, the one thing I really wanted to make sure that was in the, the city in Bastion were trams, because in Manchester, we have trams. And I think they're very good. <laughs> they're very like, they're a very nice, convenient form of public transport and much preferable to going on. The buses can be a problem around here sometimes. So having the trams in there and even the now that I think about it like that we only used one color in the book we used a sort of yellow spot color that's actually like the color of the Manchester trams so I wonder if that is like <laughs> inspired by that but I try, I try to avoid specifics because I think that there was no way of avoiding the fact that it was going to feel very British with everything I do I want to be like authentic and I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not so I'm going to like accept that my own influences are coming from like my background so I did kind of indulge in some kind of Britishisms in there for sure I wanted to do that but also leave it open so that if if somebody is running this game and, you know, they're more familiar with, I don't know, Rome or, you know, Kuala Lumpur or something, it's like their, their nearby big city. That even though there's all those things on there, they could almost just feel like their equivalent that they could just slip in there instead. So, you know, that there's weird specifics about like some bits of food and stuff that are like probably quite British in there. But I think any big city could kind of like have some of its essence poured into Bastion and it would still kind of feel right. Because I think every city, there's certain things that every city has in common and like, in my experience going to cities, it always feels like there's obviously a lot there, but everything's kind of complicated. And if, if you're not from there, especially, and everything is, you know, the idea of this kind of shared space and it's kind of like the idea of like compressing that many people into a very tight, dense space and seeing what emerges from it and what kind of places you see and like creative, like work and living solutions people come up with and like fitting all that in with people's like religions and like the history of the space and like all these kind of layers on top of each other. That was kind of the feel I was going for with Bastion. And I, and I think you could probably put your own influences on there and it would still feel like Bastion, but it would feel like your version of Bastion, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So with Electric Bastion Land, you, know, you wanted to develop the setting more but you still didn't want to come out and say like this is exactly what this city is yeah because i didn't want people to feel like they were ever going to get it wrong like i still get people asking me saying like oh would this fit in bastion and i kind of say to them like look go to the page on bastion and like what's, what's the first bullet point and it the first bullet point is everything is here and like yeah if, if you can think of something you can find a way to cram it in there you've just got to think like well how would this fit in a city and yeah I, I wanted to avoid things like maps and timelines because i do love maps but i'd rather have people make their own maps than worry about looking at my map i'd rather have a procedure for people to make their own maps which is what's in the book rather than me give you a canonical map of Bastion. And I think this was a comment by, I think it was Grant Howitt or, or Chris Taylor from Rowan, Rook and Deckard, who helped out with the kind of logistics of this book. And I think it was Grant that said something about when he was working on Spire RPG, that he wanted to have flavor rather than setting. Like lots of flavor, but not much setting. So giving people the idea of what this place is like, rather than necessarily giving them an entire like encyclopedia article of here are all the details of what Bastion is. And, and here is how Bastion's government works and here are the layers that it is separated into. Instead of that, I would rather say like, here's a sort of general set of principles for how things work in Bastion rather than a canonical definitive answer. That's interesting. So was Spire somewhat of an influence on Bastion land? Weirdly, I like discovered Spire like after I'd pretty much finished Electric Bastion land. So I got in touch with 
Rowan, Rook and Deckard to see if they'd be willing to like help out with some of the boring business side of things, basically. So I knew that they'd put books out before. And Mary at Rowan, Rook and Deckard, uh, Mary was a massive help because they deal with kind of their, like the business end of things. So it, it was more to do with like the boring logistics of like printing a load of books and sending them out. But when I first found out about Spire RPG, which was like the first thing that I saw from Rowan, Rook and Deckard, I'd already finished writing Electric Bastionland, but I was looking through it and I was like, it feels like a better version of what I've done. <laughs> it's like, not, not so much in like entirely that way, but it was more when you see something and it's just like, this feels like there's a lot of common ground here in the design. This feels like something that almost like something that you wish you'd done yourself. If I had seen it earlier, I'm certain it would have been an inspiration, but to be completely honest, the timeline didn't quite work like that. But since then, yeah, it's, it's definitely been inspiration since then, because I think it does a lot of the things that I was trying to do, which was having a rich setting that just sort of sneaks its way into you rather than hitting you in the face with a giant page of exposition it invites you into the game and then you get this flavor with the game rather than as a side dish There's a lot of food analogies going into this donation today <laughs> until it's lunchtime here <laughs> well sorry we'll try not to keep you from your lunch for too much longer so as far as the mapping of Bastion, you do have some interesting rules in place for that yeah so that there, there are procedures for create because rather than giving you like like I did with Into the Yard, I, I included like a set adventure at the back, which is very sandboxy and quite open. The dungeon is quite open and then the wilderness area is quite open, but it's like a pre-made location. I wanted this approach to be more a case of, well, this is, like I say, this is a more indulgent game. So this is something that's going to be perhaps keeping you going for longer than Into the Yard, which is meant to be like this little self-contained thing. So with Electro Bastion, I thought I can afford to ask a little bit more of the person that's running the game. I wanted it to be a case of, I'm not going to give you a starter adventure even. I'm just going to show you how to do that. So the mapping thing follows like a really simple procedure based around like a subway map, if you like, where you're just kind of drawing some dots on a line and like doing another line crossing over it and thinking about what these routes would represent and then rolling on a few tables to like seed some little ideas around your map and then just kind of bringing it all together. So I've done them on stream. I've done each of the three different types on a stream. And I think even with all the like explaining it to the people watching, I think it took me about an hour to do each one so the idea being that you can sit down for an hour before your game maybe not immediately before and just like plan out everything you're going to need to run that game by just following like a list of instructions like a cookbook set of instructions rather than having to either think about you know getting a module and converting it or you know worrying about reading ahead and feeling like you have to learn a module i think i really wanted to like empower people to like make their own stuff straight away for this Okay, excellent. Yeah, again, with everything you're doing here, creating these tables with lots of interesting results to make character creation quick and easy. You've also provided that ease on the GM side of the screen, which is yeah, great. Yeah, and the, the idea was that so there are these spark tables going through. They're essentially 2d20 tables just next to each other. Often it'll just be two words. If you're looking at Bastion, you might roll 2d20 and get, you know, 12 and 8 would be murder council. So straight away like you've got some kind of spark of an idea so this is what i kind of encourage people to do for each of the little points on their map so you know you, you could be very literal and say yeah this is the office of the murder council and then you've got something you can start to build on or it could be like an event you can say like someone on a council has been murdered or something like that i mean they're literally called spark tables so it is meant to be like the spark of an idea and sort of also getting people to not over prepare because sometimes you might just write murder council down on your map and then you might not do any more thinking about it until you play the game. And then when the players arrive at the murder council, you know, you're improvising, so it's not necessarily going to be easy. But at least you've got something that you can kind of roll with for that bit. And in my experience, often those like little improvised bits can be the things that the players really enjoy. And likewise, you can spend like hours preparing one corner of the map 
and the players just won't go there <laughs> or like they'll get there and it just falls flat. So yeah, I wanted to encourage this kind of quick, broad strokes of preparation through this procedure. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, those little seeds can really lead to some great ideas that the players or the GM would not have arrived mm, yeah. at on their own, which is great to see. So I know we mentioned the majority of the book is the different sort of character archetypes that players can get assigned randomly. Uh, could we go into then, obviously it'll be very similar to Into the Odd, but could we quickly go over the steps to character creation in Electric Bastion Land? Yeah, sure. Do you want to roll a character now? Sure. As, as a test dice? of how quick it is, we can do that. Okay. When I rolled my character for Into the Odd, I got a Polaxe, Rum, and a Bomb. That was the starter package I ended up with. So I just need 3d6, right? Yeah. So one of the bigger changes with Electro Bastion Land is I wanted to really continue down the road of like making this super accessible so you can just get into play straight away. So the way that I've done that is your character with Electric Bastion Land will start, or rather your, your whole group has a shared debt of £10,000. And earning some money by finding some treasure is your first inciting goal, I guess, of the game. But you also have a failed career behind you. So this isn't really necessarily what you are. It might be in some cases, but more likely it's going to be something that you were and something that you failed at. So it, it gives you some stuff, but you're still kind of in control of your future, if you like. So yeah, you roll 3d6 for strength, dexterity, and charisma okay and i don't get to swap these no no swapping now we've uh okay, chopped so off that feature strength i got a 12 dex let's see what we got for dex dex i got an 11 and charisma not will yep i got a nine Sounds so that means right. your so your highest score was strength 12 yep. and your lowest score was charisma 9. So we looked that up on the chart and I can see that's failed career number 31. So if I go to number 31, it tells me that, well, th there's an A side and a B side because we did some stretch goals. So you could either be a polar bounty hunter or a necro engineer. So which of those do you fancy purely off the sound of the name? When you say polar bounty hunter, is the character wearing something arctic? Uh, yes. Then that one. So um, the polar bounty hunter. So the endless polar mists are a great place to hide. You did your best to bring the lost home one way or another. So yeah, you were a bounty hunter in the polar mists and you get a poleaxe and then there are sort of two sub tables. So one of them, you're going to roll D6, which tells you how many pounds you've got. And that's also going to answer a question. So you get D6 pounds. Five. And the question that that will answer is okay. just how tough are you? And the answer is if you can pick up a container, you can break it open with just your hands and teeth. I don't think I've seen this one come up in a result before. Nice. So that is your special ability. And what power did the mist grant you? And for that, you'll be rolling D6 for your HP. All right, so another D6. Yep, this will also be your HP. I got a five again. So you have mist lung, which means you can always see your breath. So you've got like a tough bounty hunter that can rip up boxes with their hands and teeth. So it's not always like loads of stuff to go off, mm -hmm. but I wanted it to be like weird stuff. The kind of weird thing that you would remember and like would make it feel like this is different to what you've, done in other games where you've maybe rolled up a character so there's just lots of like weird abilities like that some of the results that you could have had for the first one is you might have had a wolf that follows your every command you could have had an adoring follower you could have had the ability to whistle loud enough to cut through any noise and over vast distances you could have been immune to alcohol and other toxins or you could have had an eye patch and a captivating story about how you got it so yeah there's a lot of like implied setting in these is the idea so that even when you're rolling up your character just by flicking through this section you might be absorbing the setting and if you're the gm you might also just be picking up little ideas here and there 
for what to put in your game as well because having 200 pages of character creation is very indulgent if you're just using it once and that's <laughs> absolutely not the purpose here the idea is that this is the world so if you're running the game you're also going to be flipping through it to see you know the artwork all the different failed careers all the different things that you can have they're all things that can be like used in other ways this is like the library of bastion land if you like what's very interesting to me in this particular example is that i ended up with a poleaxe again ah yeah <laughs> just like <laughs> into the other yeah that's awesome but to be honest i find it daunting to think of trying to come up with all of these different results how do yeah, you it took a while <laughs> <laughs> okay so like i say it started as kind of a challenge so there's so there's two D6 tables on each failed career. Oh, and there's also the debt holder. Sorry. So this, there's also like the person right. that you owe the money to. So you owe £10,000 to the fictioneers. So in their office is a large empty book with your name written on the front. If you're late paying your debt, the fictioneers can make unpleasant things happen to you by writing them within. Awesome. So that's who you owe your £10,000 to. And so I guess there's 12 entries. Well, so there's something you get for free. So there's 13 sets of stuff on each of these results and there's over 100. So yeah, it's about 1,300-ish results. <laughs> which now I say it out loud is kind of ridiculous, but it started as a bit of a challenge because I thought, well, can I do 100 as a challenge? And often when I do that for a blog post or something, I'll end up doing like 36 and thinking, ah, stuff it. I'll just make it a D36 table instead. But yeah, I just kind of kept going and I thought, well, no, maybe let's see if I can do 100. And it, it was for that reason. It wasn't necessarily for the fact that I needed 100 for the players. You know, it, it's nice that each player gets something kind of unique, but it is also just like, well, what if this was the meat of the setting as well? This is how I'm going to tell people about the world mainly it's going to be through characters that might be you know the stars of the story it's not going to be here are your characters and here's all the supporting cast it's more like here are 100 potential protagonists that you can sort of mine for ideas so yeah it took a long time there was lots of browsing of increasingly weird articles and also there's four sample names for each of the failed careers and they're all like references to something but because I did them all over a long amount of time, I like can't remember what most of them are. Okay. But, so <laughs> there's lots of like hidden references that nobody will ever know, including myself, uh, <laughs> hidden away in the sample names. And I mean, as far as that sort of design choice for a role-playing game, it makes an awful lot of sense. I'm not going to build the world. I'm going to tell you what sort of people live in it. Yeah. And especially with this idea of being like a city-based well, I mean, like I say, you can play outside of Bastion. There's Deep Country, but the assumption is that you at least come from Bastion for the most part. And a city is its people to some extent, really. More so than even if you're in the countryside, it's easy to forget that there's other people around because if you go for some walk in the hills, you might be like, oh, I can't see another person for miles. This is great. But you don't really ever get that luxury in a city. I wanted it to feel like it was a world that's very much personified by its population and especially with the artwork. So Alex Sorensen did all of the artwork for this. And with the brief, I sort of said to him, I want it to obviously be representing the character. So if you're looking at like, I don't know, I'm going to find one here. So the academic debater is another failed career. And I was like, obviously you want there to be like a character that's kind of representing this, but make sure that there's lots of other people in the frame as well. So it's not very often that there's just like one character in the frame. There's usually just like crowds around them, or they, they might even be like in the background and there might be someone more obviously in the foreground. And I just wanted to create that feel of when you're like in a crowd in a city and you're seeing all these different people and like the idea that they've all got their own stories going on as well. 
was really important. And yeah, I'm looking at this academic debater and there's some weird characters that I didn't notice the first time. I'm, I'm still finding things in this artwork because I wanted that to be, as much as the words, I wanted the art to really reflect that kind of feel of a city as well. Okay, excellent. And I do think that does come across in the art and that's something I definitely want to talk to you about. But I also want to talk to you about the other people that they may be encountering, specifically whoever they owe money to, because you do have this debt mechanic built in to the character creation. We mentioned it a little earlier. And the way that it works is every character profile has somebody that they owe money to, but it's set up where the entire party owes money to a single person or group. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Quickly? Yeah, so you, you have a shared debt, which is kind of, again, it's convenient from a game point of view. Because it gets you all together and it gives you a reason to be together. And it, it does say like you, you might not even know each other. You might have just, maybe you've received a letter saying that your debt is shared between these four people. And there's a lot of themes of like bureaucracy in Bastion and like everything is shared. So a lot of that is like space is shared. Not many buildings that are just one thing. If you go into a shop, it might also be some form of like temple or some form of residential building, or it might be like a factory and a shop. Lots of things are shared in their purpose. So sharing the debt is the first way that you're going to encounter that in the world and, you know players will be like well that doesn't make sense and you say yeah well welcome to bastion that's how it is here <laughs> but yeah it's cool because it also gives you like a little it's like a gentle way of creating a group dynamic like it's not saying that outright you are all like let's say you all used to be colleagues or something like it's not saying that but you have to kind of explain it away so there's one again i'm just looking through the pages now so one is for the bastiard free press council so you have a shared subscription to a local newspaper delivered daily to a personal box nearby so you need to work out why do you share a subscription to a local newspaper and how have you managed to rack up a £10,000 debt to this newspaper delivery company? And again, I, want, I wanted it to be like a, a spark of an idea rather than me giving you like the definitive answer to that. Again, I think that's genius. And I think the effort that you put into coming up with so many unique results is really astounding. Although it's, it's weird when, when you go through and like check it, it's when I was sort of like going through and like proofreading, proofreading, I got like annoyed at myself because I, I tried to avoid duplication, but there's obviously going to be... A a few things in there that like appear multiple times and it kind of creates like a kind of you know if i'm being fancy i could say it's creating like repeating motifs but there's a lot of references to like gruel and there's lots of like there's lots of i know well the, the biggest thing i noticed was i was giving lots of the careers chewing gum because i think chewing gum is quite a fun item to use in like creative solutions like the classic thing of like it's cartoon logic i guess of like mm. sticking two ends of something together with chewing gum so i just made sure that there were all different flavors of chewing gum and it kind of became a thing in the setting there's like hundreds of different brands of gum in weird flavors it's an interesting challenge to write that many things because you do notice like repeating patterns and it's an interesting decision whether to like embrace them or when to try and remove them and when to just embrace them is, is an interesting choice yeah and i can imagine working in the quantity that you're working in trying to decide if something is too similar to something else would get rather challenging but i think you did a, a great job of that so that does kind of lead into something else i want to talk to you about which was uh, your decision to remove willpower and replace it with charisma. We brought back charisma as an ability score. Uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit about that decision? Yeah, so I, I really went around on that. I was never quite... Strength and dexterity, I've always been kind of happy with. They, like, they work fine. But will always felt... It was the one that I found people most struggling with. They're all the character that had like so-so abilities for strength and dexterity, but had like a really good will. For new players especially, I found them struggling to know like what to do with that. And it was kind of, I noticed that I was using it mostly passively and mostly as a like reaction 
thing rather than something that you could actively try and use. Whereas if you roll a strong character, even though strength doesn't really affect damage output or anything like that, you at least know that you can handle yourself in a fight and you can like do things related to being strong. And if you roll a high dexterity, you know that you can be kind of sneaky and fast. But I wanted people to get excited about the third score as well. And after trying some out in practice, going back to charisma, people just knew what it meant. <laughs> kind of when you get like a charisma 18 or something, people are like, oh, great. Well, I'll be the, you know, the, the cliche is like, I'll be the party face and I, I'll talk to people. And it gives you a little bit more identity. And it's something that I found easier to try and use and trying to sort of play to that as your strength. I found much easier than will, which was always a little bit more abstract. To be honest, it serves exactly the same purpose, really. It really is just like a new coat of paint because I always used Will as a kind of catch-all mental and personality thing, really. So yeah, it, it kind of serves the same purpose. It really is just a name thing. So if somebody really, really wants to use Will instead of Charisma, like there's nothing that won't work, basically. But I, I just found that for new players, especially Charisma was like a, a much more accessible one to use. Sure, and I can see where Will power, you know, might be interpreted more as tenacity than... Yeah, so with Into the Yard, with these Arcana items that you had, uh, there was a mechanic in Into the Yard where you could like, you could bend it to do something different. So let's say you had a movable rod, as an example. Then you could try and do something weird with it so you could say like well maybe i want to throw it and have it stop right in front of this person which is kind of like not using it for maybe its set purpose and then i could say well you can roll a will save to do that but i found that it kind of caused more problems than it solved and it became a little bit messy in play as to what was allowed so with electric bastion i took that out there's no bending it to your will now it's more a case of here's a thing that does something quite specific and the challenge is in making it useful so like for instance your character's ability to break open any container with their hands and teeth you're gonna have to try and work to make that useful because <laughs> it's, it's like sure it's great when you find the locked box but if you want to like really excel you're gonna have to find a way to make that kind of useful and, you know and if you want to convince me that you're being attacked by these alien creatures and you want to pick this creature up and you say right i want to rip open his rib cage with, with my teeth because i can rip open a box you know that's for you to kind of talk about that and we'll work out whether or not we can make that work and whether that counts as a container so yeah that's the other reason that i kind of took that because characters with a high will score always felt like they should be doing that a lot more and they should be trying to bend the arcana to their will and it felt a little bit clunky. So yeah, charisma is a little bit cleaner in that sense as well. Okay, I can see that. So did Arcana make it from Into the Odd into Electric Bastion Land? Yeah, so th they are essentially, they're called oddities now. Only because I, one of the other challenges is I wanted to use like as few new words as I could. So in Into the Odd, I know that like Arcana is a word, but it's also like a very fancy word that I'm going to have to probably explain to some people that don't read a lot of role-playing games because it makes perfect sense when you've been immersed in that, you know, your whole life. But I wanted a more straightforward word. So they're called oddities now, which also lets them be a bit broader. So it's not even necessarily always an item. So an oddity could be a living thing. So there's like one character that has an opportunity to get like a load of weird bugs that are essentially oddities, but they're like animals. And then you have some things that are like, you know, your special ability to break open cases could be looked at as an oddity because it's like a, a strange ability. They've been reframed slightly, but they're still in there. And I wanted to sort of, again, explode the idea and think, well, if I wasn't just trying to make a load of magic items and, you know, rings and rods and stuff, what else could be in here as like special unexplained things that break the rules? Okay. And they function similarly? They just do what they do. So there's actually no rules around them now, which is kind of the way that the Arcanus kind of went with Into the Odd. Oh, 
kind of gradually moved like away from having any rules as I developed it. But the rules for oddities are characters acquire devices with unusual abilities as they explore the world. These oddities do not require a role to use, but generally they have a very specific power, limited number of uses, or carry some other disadvantage. And that is essentially it. And then you might just get one. You might just get one from your failed career. So you might have a powder sack. Any powder stored in this small pouch becomes essentially unlimited. Turning the pouch inside out empties the current contents with no unusual effects, currently contains salt. So like I say, the items that I really like tend not to interact with the rules anyway. So I'm not so much interested in like, you know, a ring of fire resistance, but you know, something that makes you immune to fire is more interesting to me. It's something that just makes sense straight away and it's very specific and it's interesting to me. It means that they're all kind of quite big and impactful, but in quite a specific way. And they make sense to somebody who doesn't understand the rules. That's the thing. Even if it's your first time playing the game, you're not going to get an oddity that doesn't make sense to you. It's always going to make sense that, oh, I've got this weird thing and it does this. Excellent. Okay. And so do some of them tie back into the abilities? Only in the sense that some of them might cause like ability loss, but you're never going to get one that says... I, I could be wrong. I'm hoping I'm right here, but I don't think there's any in here that are like, you know, make a strength save to use this or something like that. Because, you know, your character might not have a decent strength score. So, but you, you might get things that cause you to lose ability score. So you might get something that like leeches away your charisma in return for some sort of effect, or you might have something that, you know, causes dexterity loss to a target, but they're always going to be more than that. I didn't want there to just be like a ray of dexterity damage or something like that. I wanted them all to do something, something that's more focused on like problem solving and like a weird effect that breaks the rules rather than something that just exists within the existing rules like if you want to shoot someone then get a gun don't look for the oddities because they're kind of filling a different sort of niche they're more likely to be things like again i'm looking down the list like a spare head so you might have a completely different head that you can switch with your own <laughs> <laughs> like the, the things that you usually have to think to like work out how am i going to make this useful um, rather than just thinking oh great i've got a you know i've got a wonder fireball i'm going to use this to blow up some people i'm, I'm curious how i'm curious how you came up with a lot of this but spare head where do you remember where that one came I, from? I, well to be honest there was a lot of red dwarf references in here because i'm a big red dwarf fan and i don't know if you're familiar with the program i've never seen it but i know it exists yeah. so it's like um like a, a sci-fi comedy series it's still going but primarily from like early 90s i guess and yeah there is a robot character that has several spare heads that have a different personality so it's kind of like a stupid reference to that but yeah i, I tried to just like if i had a stupid idea try to put it in because i would i was always rather <laughs> i'd always rather have the stupid idea in there rather than like i, I, I don't think anything got filtered out because when you're doing this many you've got to put them in i don't think there was anything that came up with and i thought no nah, that's that's too much i'm taking that out i might have like changed how it worked specifically but i think everything went in <laughs> are there any that you hate like are there any that you regret well there's a few that were in into the odd that i really regretted because they just weren't interesting enough so i had like a heat ray which is like a kind of war of the worlds kind of reference i guess in into the odd but it it basically just worked like a gun that ignored armor. It wasn't interesting because it just replaced a gun, really. So in this one, I've revisited some of those that I didn't like and I've improved them. So the heat ray now, you can't really use it as a conventional weapon, but you can focus it on something to gradually increase its heat to make it sort of melt and eventually turn to ashes but you've got to set it up and aim it at something so it's very good in specific things but it's not going to be like a combat weapon unless you can get someone to stand very still while you incinerate them no i don't think there's any that i regret but the fact is obviously there's so many that i've not seen the vast majority of them at the table so if you're like running this game and you roll the i'm looking down the list now there's an ovality bomb which is probably quite stupid so it's a bomb that explodes in a cloud of beige dust forming a two meter high egg 
snake around the blast area. Nothing inside can break out, but the outside is easily broken. So you can like encase someone in an egg, I guess. Like if you roll that, I can tell you like I've never had a game where we rolled that. And that's probably true for like 90% of the items. So like most of them aren't tested. So the thing that I quite like is the idea that somebody's <laughs> probably getting that and they're probably the first person to ever experience that um that particular <laughs> item but no, i don't think there's any that i regret yet but after i played it a bit more maybe i'll discover one and uh start to, start to think again do you come across some that you're just like you have no recollection of ever inventing oh there's a lot of that because i kind of wrote it over so it came out like five years after into the odd but it's i wasn't like literally writing it for five years because i was obviously like going through periods of creativity on it and then like putting it on the back burner and like coming back and rethinking it so it was over a long period of time so when i came back to like read through it all and like you know actually polish it all up in terms of getting it ready for release there was a lot that i didn't remember doing and like even now looking through it i don't remember a great deal of it because um <laughs> there's just a lot i think you couldn't get anyone to write a list of 1300 things and not forget most of them yeah that, that is likely true so are there any other major mechanical differences between the two games that we didn't yeah touch so on? there's there's a couple of like small things so the way that combat works in into the yard i've said about how you don't roll to hit you basically just roll damage so it's not a case of am i going to get taken out it's a case of can i take out the enemy before they take me out because you're both going to be getting worn down by the fight so it, it's really cool but one of the side effects is strength in numbers is like a massive factor because there's no rolling to hit if you get attacked by like four even just like four, like, I don't know, wolves or something, or like something that's not meant to be like an especially huge threat, or just like four random thugs. There's like a decent chance that you might just get killed outright. And I guess that kind of makes sense. Like I wouldn't want to try and defend myself against four people hitting me with clubs at once in real life. But it's kind of unsatisfying from a game point of view in some ways. So I wanted to like slow down combat in those extreme cases without like slowing everything down and without changing the whole system. So there's like a small tweak where if you're getting ganged up on, basically all attackers roll their damage and you take the single highest result. So it's still advantageous to have two or three people attacking the same target, but it sort of incentivizes you to think more about spreading out your attacks or even think about doing something that isn't attacking if there's four of you attacking one monster maybe one or two of you can be doing something else something else that helps you with what you're trying to do rather than just fighting this monster i really had to work hard to justify this change to myself because it does make things a little bit more fiddly and it can be a little bit counterintuitive the first time you use it but it's much rarer to be able to just get like outright killed in one shot and you're much less likely to have a big scary monster that you encounter just get like beaten down by all four of you running up with clubs and hitting it until it's dead it keeps things fast but then it slows things down in those sort of high intensity moments so that you actually do get some kind of more interesting tactical decisions to make in those moments rather than it just being like not to 100 in one go that's kind of the big change i think other than what i said about the way that oddities now you know i most cases it's a removal of a rule like i removed that rule about being able to bend an arcanum to your will but that's the only like rules addition that I can think of off the top of my head. Oh, there's one other thing. Like there's a slight change. If you're getting a, a bonus from attacking someone, like that works slightly differently now, but it's, it's not even worth mentioning really. 
Oh, one thing that I added in actually, there was, like I said, I only wanted to add in mechanics that kind of justified their place there. Because basically anything I add in is going to add to the complexity. So it had to bring some interesting stuff to the party if it was going to be allowed to stay. So there's a rule called deprivation, which means it's just a really simple little thing that means that someone deprived of a crucial need, such as food, water, or warmth, cannot benefit from rests. So a rest is when you get your HP back. So like it's a, a minute or two and a drink of water. So it's like a nice little multi-purpose rule because you can use it in cases where, you know, you've, they've run out of food and you're starving. So I didn't want the players to just starve to death. That's not a very interesting way for your character to go out. But if you are deprived and you're starving, you're going to be much, much more weakened and you're going to find it much more difficult to stay alive if you're also like fighting and taking damage and things like that. But it, it's a nice little rule that you can include. It lets you do some weird stuff with some characters so one of the failed careers is the fashionista and if you are the fashionista then you are deprived if you dress without making a statement so if you're <laughs> forced to wear like boring ordinary clothes then you're not going to be able to recover your hp basically so it lets you do some nice little like things that like force the character to act in a way without just outright forcing them without saying like look you have to dress like a fashionista if you get the fashionista thing it's a nice little subtle way of getting the players to do something and I've, weirdly like the fashionista I think just because of the way the probabilities work on the chart, the fashionista is quite a frequent fail career. And I've had it a few times and it's always interesting how the players justify that they're dressing to make a statement to avoid getting that. So it means that you have a character that's always wearing something different each day. And it's just like a nice little flavor thing. So yeah, that rule made it in just because it's one that can be used in a number of ways while it's still also nice and quick to explain. Excellent. Yeah, I would agree. I think that can add some interesting elements without being overly complicated. You also mentioned something else, which was that the fashionista comes up quite often. And it hadn't occurred to me that some results on the table might be more likely than others. Oh yeah, it, it's all over the place because you're comparing your highest ability score to your lowest ability score so there are some results on here that if you're doing it this way i think it's something like a 0.01 percent chance so there's 94 entries on this table but then there are also six bonus ones at the end to take it up to 100 that are like extra ones that aren't strictly listed. And then some of them also have A and B sides that were written by guest authors. So I think all in all, there's 112 of these careers. But the thing that I wanted to avoid, or rather the issue with just rolling play is that, yes, yeah, so there's certain results that are incredibly rare for you to get. So you'll have like a 0.01% chance. And then some of them will have more like a I think like a three or 4% chance. It's weighted really weirdly. And I've tried to make it so that a lot of the really cool, interesting stuff that are good uh, introductory backgrounds, I guess, in sort of getting somebody interested in the setting are on those more frequent results. And also those ones that are on the very rare results, they tend to be ones that are perhaps even more unusual. But what I encourage people to do is that like you should use this system to start with. But once you've played a few times, rather than using this system, just roll a D100 for your fail career, because then obviously it's like a 1% chance across the board. It's kind of slipped in there as an optional rule, but I wish I'd kind of made a bit of a bigger deal about it. Because if you just stick to the normal creation method, you are going to get weighted towards certain ones quite heavily. But yeah, I would encourage people, I, I tend to now go with the D100 roll, because it means you're more likely to get some of the weird stuff that tucked away yeah i guess i mean law of averages rolling 3d6 you're going to end up kind of in the middle of the chart more yeah. often than not i suppose it's more likely that you're going to have like a, a high score of 12 and a low score of 8 than you are going to have like a high of 18 and a low of 15 let's say and yeah there's some more of that stuff from into the odd where some of the poor results actually give you better stuff and some of the stronger results actually give you something that's that's worse it's a bit harder to do that across a D100. So one of the things that I did try to do is, like I said about having some of those results in the middle be more interesting because if you get like 
tens and elevens across the board, you kind of need something to latch onto to make your character cool. So that a lot of the interesting stuff is kind of tucked away in the middle. Okay, excellent. So in Into the Odd, you roll and you get one of these starter packages and in Electric Bastion Land, you roll and you get one of these failed career archetypes. Once you're playing the game then, how do you go about leveling any of those characters? How do you approach that in either game? Yeah, so in Into the Odd, it's kind of... You know, when you come back from a successful expedition the first time, I think like when you return from one expedition, you go up in a level and you get like a bit more HP and you might increase your ability scores. And then there's like five levels that require you to do certain things. So it's like a checkbox. I didn't want to have like experience tracking. It was just about like, well, was this a successful expedition? If it was, then jot it down and we'll keep track of it rather than sort of worrying about like experience points and things like that. And yeah, so and as you get higher up to like veteran level, that requires you to have taken on an apprentice and then to get to master level, which is the highest level, you need to have gotten your apprentice up to like one of the higher experience levels themselves. So there's a little bit of a twist at the end where the implication is that you're going to be like hiring the next generation, I guess. But in Electric Bastion Land, I was kind of floating an idea of something called foreground growth which is kind of a fancy way of saying like I wanted your character to grow via the things that happen to them in the game rather than stuff that happens off screen. So I didn't want you to have the adventure and then you realize that you've leveled up and you come back for the next game and it's like, oh yeah, while we were away, I learned power attack and I got this new spell. I wanted it to all be stuff that happened in the game. So an obvious example is even in like D&D, when you find a magic item that's useful to you, you know, hopefully you'll remember where you got it from and it kind of has a bit of a story behind it. But I wanted to see if I could apply that to everything basically so the oddities are a big part of that in the sense that you are going to pick up more weird oddities as you go through the game and some like monsters and enemies might even like rub off on you and sort of give you these weird effects but in terms of like just getting outright more powerful in terms of gaining hp that happens through scars which is the the other big rules addition that i actually didn't mention for electric bastion land so if you get taken to exactly zero hp you get a scar and when you look at it first it looks like a normal kind of critical hit table you've got things like a punctured organ or a part of you is maimed or um a fractured skull but the thing is i didn't want them to be necessarily bad which sounds weird so they are bad but they're not going to necessarily cause your character like long-term harm perhaps it's going to create like an interesting moment but what a lot of these scars do is they let you essentially gain more hp so if you want to get more hp and get tougher that happens through having these experiences where you get scars so one of them is so if you take five damage and it reduces you to exactly zero hp that would be the bloody mess result which means you need stitches and you're deprived until you get that sorted by a specialist so you've got to go back to a doctor and get your like wound stitched up but you get more hp but it's tied to a real thing so your character now we'll have all these stitches like on their wound like and you, you might say like oh well where is it and you say like oh well it's you know it's down my back i've got this big wound where now where there's a big scar and that's why i now have 10 hp because i got torn up by this horrible alien creature it's a very different approach to what a lot of games have done and you know i've always said i wanted to do something different but it works really well for me and i, I like it a lot but it's definitely a departure from sort of a traditional leveling system that's for sure i don't mind it being in there because you don't need to know that to start with all you need to know is like oh well by the way if you get taken to exactly zero hp you're going to get a scar which might make you tougher in the long term but we'll deal with that when we get to it rather than sort of telling the player like oh yeah you're going to level up and each time you level up you're going to choose a new ability from this list and you'll get this many skill points i wanted to kind of avoid that and have it just be something that's part of your character's ongoing story rather than something you need to like plan ahead for is it if you just get to zero but don't affect your strength or is it also if you dip below into your I know, it's only if you go exactly to zero so it, it might not happen like for an entire session or you might get like a weird session where like three of your players end up getting scarred 
But because it doesn't take away your strength, you're never going to die as a result of these scars. It's always going to be like something that you fight on through. Even if it's like you could have a random limb torn off. Obviously, if we, if, I'm not a doctor, but I believe having a limb torn off is quite damaging to somebody's capabilities, like in the immediate term and quite a high risk of death. But I didn't want it to be like sometimes in a critical injury table like this, you'll have results where you roll something and you think, well, you're basically telling me that I'm basically dead or my character is going to be like no good from now on. But with these, the implication is they're just, they should make your character more interesting. They're not going to necessarily make you worse. There are a few that cause like a bit of ongoing vulnerability that you can fix, like the example that I mentioned or can get like a punctured organ but most of them you can kind of if you get to a specialist if you go and find a doctor they'll be able to at least remove the negative effect they're unpredictable and you might go entire sessions without seeing them but they create that nice little dramatic moment when somebody does get it to exactly zero and in my experience they're always excited to see what happens to them because it's something a little bit different for them as well yeah and as you mentioned because it's an injury that's reducing them down to exactly zero hit points which again is not their health but how much damage they can take overall it would be kind of an exciting rarity and yeah i think it's a very interesting system yes yeah, so you can't sort of go into a fight thinking well i'm going to go and get in a fight and get a scar to improve my hp most of the time you're more likely to just like get really seriously hurt so it's more like a nice little perk of living a dangerous life rather than an incentive to go and live a dangerous life yeah it does make taking that couple of hits a little more exciting as we've mentioned but okay so with electric bastion land it took a very long time to come up with these thousands and thousands of results but once you had how'd you go about playtesting this game well the thing is the core of the system was already relatively well tested because it was kind of based off house rules i was making to into the odd myself so the biggest test was just seeing how people responded to this way of generating characters so it was just like going to conventions or meetups and like putting down my home printed well not quite home printed my printer isn't that good but like getting sort of prototype copies printed up and just like sitting people down and saying like, look here's your character you roll and you get this career and seeing how they responded to that and which ones sort of landed and which ones didn't and that was the kind of the bulk of the playtesting really because the system itself had already kind of been tested with Into the Odd and that was the advantage of sticking with such a familiar system and then after that the bit that it was kind of hard to test was the other like big chunk of the book is GM advice on how to actually run the game and how to run the world and it's kind of hard to test that outside of just like giving someone the book and saying like off you go I think what I did was I did like two rounds of public playtesting where in the first one I gave people like a sample adventure that they could just play out and ask for their feedback but in the second round of testing I just gave them a bunch of the running the game section and some of the spark tables and some of the guidance for like how to run the game and said like look try doing it with just this and yeah that was interesting i got lots of good feedback from that and people did respond well to this running the game section because what i wanted to do with that section was i wanted to have every spread be like a mini gm screen almost so everything that you need for a particular thing is on like a two-page spread. So if you're running Bastion, then you've got a two-page spread that covers like understanding Bastion. So this is what you need to look at if you're like preparing to run it. And then there's a page for conducting Bastion, which is like what you might need for most of the time that you're actually conducting the game, which is what I call like GMing in this game. Are you the conductor? Yeah, the, you're the conductor. So nice. I, I normally cringe at people like trying to reinvent the word GM. Mm-hmm. I used referee in Into the Odd because I wanted to kind of focus on this kind of impartial arbiter kind of thing, but it didn't feel quite right. It felt a little bit formal and like stuffy. So I wanted it to be a bit more like they were involved with the play. So conductor is nice because if you imagine like the conductor of an orchestra, they're not a musician, but they are still making the music. That kind of relationship is quite close to what I was kind of hoping for, where they felt perhaps a bit more involved with it. They're not just there to be the person that has no fun and runs the game. They are like a part of the process with 
the players and the kind of guiding them. And it also has the nice like silly pun of conducting electricity. Oh, of course. I was thinking of like trains. Yeah, and train conductor or tram conductor. Yeah, so it's it's yeah. like a triple threat. That's why I allowed it. It was just too good to pass up on, really. But yeah, and, and people really liked the idea. People, I think when people run games, from what they've told me, a lot of people try and fit everything onto like a couple of pages that they need. And people are so used to having these GM screens that have like all their reference points. And a lot of people find it hard like flicking through a book. So the main thing that came back from that playtesting was like the really good response to this kind of two-page spread idea and trying to get everything like a mini GM screen for each spread. Nice. Okay. And so when you did start conducting the game, what sort of adventures were you running? What sort of adventures did you intend Electric Bastion Land for? So Into the Odd was, you know, very much based around the idea of like a dungeon crawl is kind of like sort of assumed in there but with electric bastion as i sort of discovered there was a bit more of a focus on bastion and all these weird failed careers it kind of slipped into more of a like a city crawl i guess you could call it so a lot of my games just involved like planning out a borough of the city and putting lots of like factions in conflict with each other and just kind of creating a really high explosive situation and letting the players loose in it and saying oh and, and ps there's some treasure somewhere in this borough that you can go find so kind of turn into like weird urban scavenger hunts where they were trying to like find a lost item and just interacting with a load of weird people in weird places in the city which people kind of responded well to because i think city games can sometimes feel like a tough undertaking if you're trying to make it like feels that needs to be lots of intrigue and in my experience it always felt like a lot of hard work compared to just running a dungeon which felt very straightforward but with bastion you, you can kind of almost treat it a bit like a dungeon like i have this whole thing in the back about how the city is an adventure location and don't think of the city as just like a shopping screen in a video game or like a menu where you just select from a load of items you say okay we're back at the city so yeah we'll get our stuff prepared we'll send you to the doctor and we'll also go and ask about this bit of information each of those things should be like an adventure in its own right in bastion so getting to the doctor is an adventure because nothing is straightforward in bastion like you don't just get on the train there's going to be decisions and interesting things happening along the way and yeah that kind of emerged kind of organically just the city grew and as the as the focus on the people and the weird careers grew but no it's been a lot of fun it's been a nice diversion from dungeon play while still scratching a lot of the same itches of like weird encounters and weird problems to be solved and exploring do you have any uh, particular examples from gameplay of when it was working the way that you wanted it to or anything that exceeded your expectations i think one of the times that i ran it i think this was yeah this was before the release but i had like a kind of prototype without any art like to take to my, my local game group and i think i decided like last minute i was going to run a game because i think somebody else had changed their mind so i think i had like half an hour before i had to go and i did what i described before where i just like drew up a quick map with like nodes getting connected by points and i just wrote like a two phrase word next to each of the nodes based on the spark tables and yeah it turned into like a siege at a pub I, I can't remember the specifics the only thing i remember is having to come up with these weird characters inside a pub and just flicking to like different pages of the failed careers and saying like, okay well this is going to be so i need to flip to a random page and i'll be like okay well, this is a, an avant-gardesman is going to be in this pub and there's going to be an agricultural saboteur and they're both sat at this table and they're, they're talking about this and it was really fun to just be able to indulge in that sort of like that level of like just kind of silly character stuff while also applying like the kind of high stakes of like a more serious campaign so like this the pub was like under siege by some kind of there was like a riot or something going on or some kind of like some kind of revolution going on outside but yeah it's that combination of being able to tap into the like that intimate feel of like this feels kind of familiar and this feels personal and like my experience living in a city but also the kind of almost like high fantasy silliness that kind of emerges out of most other role-playing games that I've played and 
the, the kind of the high stakes of a siege is. That was a fun combination, that game was. Absolutely. That does sound like a lot of fun. So something I did want to bring up here, we don't tend to talk a lot about art on this show. Not because I don't love and value game art. I absolutely mm. do. Art is very important, but it's not the focus of this podcast. And Into the Odd definitely has some cool art. You yeah. know, the silhouette wading into the swamp and various things throughout but i wanted to ask you about electric bastion land specifically could you tell us a little bit about the art direction you went with for this game so the brief that i came up with was i said about wanting to capture the feel of a busy city so (laughs) this is going to sound weird and i don't know if this is really necessarily reflected in the final art except maybe on the cover uh but i i said to alec for the art, I was like, I kind of want it to feel a bit like a Where's Wally or Where's Waldo book in the sense that <laughs> I, I, I always, I did love those books when I was like growing up, but I haven't really thought about them since. But when I think about crowd scenes, I think about like being a kid and looking through those books and just like looking for all little details and seeing like all these little stories that were emerging, like in these crowd scenes with like tiny little figures and like you know, hundreds of figures on a page. So I said like, look, I know that we probably can't do that on every page for like, <laughs> if I'm realistic asking you to do like over a hundred pieces of art in, in like quite a short amount of time. But what I wanted to have is that feel of stories happening in the background was was like a big part of the brief and just having weird stuff. So in the same way that I said when I was writing Oddities, I don't think there was anything that I didn't put in because it was too silly. I think I made everything, found a way to make it work. I said to Alec, I was like, look, if you're thinking about something and you're thinking, is this too weird, then do it. And if something goes too far, I will tell you, but I really don't think it will. So we wanted lots of details in the background and I wanted just like weird things that caught your eye. Like just, there's a lot of characters that are just weird shapes because, you know, Bastion has everything. So there are people, but there are also mockeries, which are like living felt animals. And there are machines, which are like literally living machines. There are aliens that are here and it's kind of left very open as to what these aliens are, but they're they're here living in Bastion. And yeah, so the idea is I was like, look, if you want to put in some person that's like a really weird shape or they've got like a weird... Like there's there's a particular city scene that I'm thinking of that's on like the introduction to the Bastion section where it is just a crowd scene and looking through it, there's one character that's just got like a goldfish bowl for a head. There's one that's just got like a cube with a single eye in the middle. There's one that's just got like a really long, almost like a giraffe's neck. There's a character that just has a skull for a head. There's a like a mandrill wearing a suit and like suspenders. There's just loads of weird stuff and like there's, there's people that are like almost square in shape. You'd almost think they were like a fantasy dwarf if you were reading like another game and like like, I wanted all that stuff in there and I didn't want to explain any of it because I wanted people to sort of draw their own conclusions because I think that's kind of the power of art and I think especially things like when I think back to like looking at the warmer 40,000 art when I was growing up and getting exposed to that stuff and especially like the John Blanche artwork his stuff always had so many weird details in the background where he'd obviously just put something in without being told to do it like a floating skull or something like with a load of wires hanging out the back and <laughs> you know a, a lot of those things would eventually become like parts of the Warhammer setting but my understanding is there's a lot of stuff that he just drew in there because he thought this would look cool but it feels like little secrets that you aren't supposed to notice because it's like yeah the book doesn't mention this thing like what is it and when you're trying to get people to think of their own version of this city I think that sort of stuff is really useful so yeah so lots of things in the background lots of signs on the wall saying things that tell a little story lots of weird buildings in the background that was kind of the brief I'm glad that you mentioned Where's Waldo I also loved those books when I was a kid I did not know that they were Wally in the UK yeah 
<laughs> Where's Wally in the UK? Now that I think about it, I don't know where they originated either. Are they British? I'm going to say with zero research, I'm going to say with authority that Wally is the correct. Uh, <laughs> okay, the correct. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to Google it like that. Oh, it's a British series of puzzle books. So it is Wally is the original. I, I, I assumed that it was American, but no. So why would they have changed it? I don't know. I mean, do you have people called Wally in America? I mean, it's yeah. a name. I don't yeah. know anyone named Wally, but. I don't know no. anyone named Waldo either. So, like, <laughs> it's one of those pointless modifications that I don't, you know. Who knows? But I, I do love those things. <laughs> At any rate, it's great artwork throughout the entire book, and the cover especially I really like. And you definitely can see that where's Wally or where's Waldo influence coming through. Do you say the artist's name was Alec? Yeah, Alex Sorensen, yeah. And yeah, fantastic. I can't praise him enough. He kind of simultaneously did exactly what I wanted, but it was nothing like what I was expecting. I kind of gave him the brief and I said, like, look, I kind of don't want to, it sounds like I'm trying to get out of doing the work, but I don't want to give you like a brief for every page because the words were all written. So I said, like, look, just look at this career and go with what you think and try and include some of the things that are listed <laughs> so that it's at least like related to it. But, you know, go with what you think. And then there's certain ones where he's taken a completely different approach to it to how I pictured it, but it's just really cool. And the book wouldn't have been the same without his input. No question there. No, absolutely. And obviously the artwork is incredibly important to how the game is perceived overall. What I'm curious about is this figure on the cover. There's this giant blue figure and it looks almost like Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. So again, I had a loose idea for the cover. I was like, I'd like it to be like a city scene with lots of like really small characters. Like I said, this is kind of the most obvious where's Wally kind of reference. So yeah, there's some kind of giant i mean i don't even know if it's a statue or what like it's it's completely <laughs> left open or if it's alive and yeah I, I didn't tell it i think there is a tram on the cover and i think i did say can we have a tram please because <laughs> that was just like a silly thing and there are a few people on here people that back the kickstarter at a certain level got included whenever i see artwork that has like people who've essentially like pledged at a higher level to get in the artwork i sometimes find it really distracting because sometimes you'll be looking through art and then there's a very obvious picture that looks like it's weirdly like weirdly modern and weirdly like specific person and you're like i reckon that's a kickstarter backer but here i tried to like say look we'll do that but only if we can kind of really have lots of weird people in the scene as well so that it's not obvious that like here's a bunch of people and here's some kickstarter backers hidden in there so the cover was the only piece that was really like briefed in any kind of like even remote detail really and it was really just like the sort of the structure of it and then yeah he was completely let loose with the details yeah, and he did a great job. And what's cool is there's a consistency in the strangeness that somehow because everything is so disparate and weird, it can cohabitate the same world. Yeah. The other thing sort of that was part of the brief as well was it, it, it felt like an impossible brief, but I'm glad that he said he was able to do it. And I think he's managed. I kind of said like, obviously I want lots of detail and I want characters that have like weird specific things about them. So I'm looking at one now where there's like, this is the exotic food supplier. And this was actually written by Arnold Kemp of Goblin Punch, not by me. But the artwork shows there's like a weird little, I'm guessing it might be a mockery because it's kind of like this weird little creature with an elephant's head. And then there's someone else just wearing like some kind of I don't know, it looks kind of like a diving helmet or something. But then a lot of the characters in the background are just in silhouette or their faces are left blank. And I kind of said I wanted some of that to kind of have this a combination of like, there are some people that stand out of the crowd, but then there are just like the elemental crowd almost of like just people, almost like scenery mm -hmm. of like that feel of like there's so many people around, you can't take them all in. All you get are like glimpses of details on a few specific people and everyone else is just kind of like people that are in your way or like sort of bumping into you when, you, when they walk past you. So yeah, there's a lot of 
silhouettes and like blank faces as well are like another theme. That's weird and also kind of unsettling to think of humans as scenery, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that's that's exactly the function of those. Yeah. So at the end of, the, after all the GM advice, there is a lot of the stuff that I wrote for my blog, I thought would be useful for people to be able to read, but I didn't want to include it as like essential reading. So I had the odd pendium section at the end, which is a lot of like extra sort of optional material. And some of it is like, you know, blog posts talking about like how to run the game and things like that. But some of them are just like weird little, almost like mini essays or like columns about like just the design behind the game. So one of them that I spoke about was like the the idea of the city as an adventure site. But I had this article saying about how people are everything. And part of it is the idea that when you're in a city, if you're thinking of something, either like tie it to a person or make it a person. So, you know, it's kind of an extreme example here, but it says people you talk to are non-player characters. Everyone else is scenery. They're the trees in the forest slowing you down. They're the boggy ground drowning your horse. They're the sheer cliff face between you and the treasure. They're the wolves waiting to eat your corpse. So the idea was that if you could think of anything that you would normally put in your game as like a challenge, see if you can make it a person. So like the avalanche is a riot. The weapon is a mercenary. The treasure is a hostage. And by making everything a person, especially in Bastion, it kind of like reinforces that theme of people. And yeah, it's a bit of a weird experiment, but that's kind of where that idea kind of came from. Yeah, well, it's very interesting and it makes sense with the setting you're trying to portray. Yeah, for sure. So is there anything in either of these games that you would say you are most proud of? I think I'm probably more, when I say I'm more proud of Electric Bastion and Into the Odd was like, you know, the first one that I did and I learned a lot from that experience. But I'm especially like, personally tied to Electric Bastion just because I did kind of do it all other than the artwork and uh, some bits of help that I had here and there I kind of did it all myself I self-published it you know I I learned layout to do the it's a very basic layout but I did it all myself so it, it feels very much like something that I've kind of poured myself into and the thing that I'm most proud of is rather than like any specific things like there are specific little mechanical things that I'm really happy with but I'm really proud of how weirdly alive it feels I do feel like by looking through the book the fact that i wrote it i'm still like uncovering little things now so like when i look through the failed careers i always find a little oddity or something where i'm like i don't remember writing that or i'll, I'll notice something in the artwork where it's like oh and i never noticed that little detail before so it, it does feel like a living world that's kind of like stuck inside this book and i think that is something that i was hoping i'd be able to do but i think that the finished book with all the art and everything in it has really kind of exceeded my expectations in that so yeah that's probably the element of it that i would say i'm the most proud of as well you should be it is as you put it a world that does feel very much alive even though As you've also mentioned, it's really only implied, and I think you really did accomplish something there. So with that, do you have any future plans for either of these games that we should know about? Um, Or other upcoming projects in general? Yeah, yeah. so so the reason I'm pausing is um, I've, I've been pretty vocal about how I sort of said as a joke that my next book will be called Intergalactic Bastionland. I've seen that on your blog and I wasn't sure what what was going on (laughs) there. Sorry, I originally said that as a joke, but then all my projects start as a joke and then I end up just making them. There's no secret information here. Like at the moment, it's just like a few very loosely formed blog post ideas. And like the fact is that without being able to, you know, play around a table this past year, 
uh, it's kind of sat on the back burner until I can kind of get a regular group together to test out something like that. But I do want to do something in that area. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to just do like a sci-fi coat of paint on top of Electric Bastion Land. Like I don't want to do that, but I want to use it to explore. So the part of the world that I didn't mention is the living stars in Electric Bastion Land, which are kind of like, they're kind of outside of the world that you're expected to explore. Like it's assumed you're going to be either in Bastion or in the underground or in deep country, but the living stars are there and there's kind of like aliens that have come from there but it's all left very open so i would like to explore that but i'm still working out the best way to do that so i would like to do another kind of book that kind of takes some of the design philosophy of electric bastion land but like expands it into a sort of slightly different direction but that's all very vague at the moment and in terms of other things i'm tinkering around with a lot of so one of the things about lockdown is i've kind of got back into miniatures after having escaped for about 18 years of having like not touched a miniature i thought i would just buy like a pack of miniatures to paint and that was sort of this time last year and since then i've ended up like just spending a lot of time working on miniature systems because i'm getting like drawn into that area now so there's a few things going on in that area that i've been working on but intergalactic bastion and hopefully hopefully at some point but there's no big scheme behind the scenes on that one just yet see and i would have thought that miniatures i guess you're right people are at home and it's you know they can sit there and, and paint you know yeah that's it like i I was like, I'm going to be stuck inside. I've got like all my weeknights are free. Like, well, my weekends are free, frankly. But like, yeah, it, it was just a case of like, what can I do that isn't playing video games and watching TV like, and going for walks around the neighborhood? See, and I would have thought that the miniatures market was like decimated by the fact that no, because you need other people. It's set, like you can't do that online. If you're doing it online, yeah. it, it's it's something else entirely. And so I, I would have thought that they would have been hurting. Maybe they are, but that's that's an interesting point that like, yeah, well, as far as the, the craft side of things, you have all sorts of time to be building all these little components. Yeah, weirdly, like, the other players are often not the best bit of miniature games, like from my memory. Like I always enjoyed playing with friends, but like whenever I used to play with like random people, it was almost universally a bad experience. <laughs> like, I, I probably just got unlucky playing in like random games workshops and stuff. But yeah, the, you know, the, the building and painting of your army, I was never good at it as a child, but at least now it's much easier than it was with everything being plastic and like you can go online and just like ask how do i do this and, and there'll be 500 youtube videos of somebody showing you how it's done and in a weird way i'm i'm getting like a taste of what it must be like to be like an instagram influencer that posts pictures of like their breakfast and gets 10,000 likes because when when i post like a picture of some like miniature that i've cobbled together if i get like two people saying like yeah it looks pretty good i get like a massive dopamine hit from that <laughs> it's like i'm not i'm not used to like posting pictures for free for praise on social media so i'm getting like a, a little taste of that and yeah it, there seems to be quite a nice little community around it online so it's it has really it's been a, it's been a good thing to help get me through this last year for sure which is great we've all needed something like that so where would you direct listeners to pick up a copy of Into the Odd or Electric Bastion Land? So if you go to bastionland.com, you'll see the ability to buy Electric Bastion Land in the sidebar there. Into the Odd is currently available through print-on-demand on drive-through RPG. And yeah, everything else is on bastionland.com where you can get the, the Bastion Land podcast. I do video content and there's a Patreon if you really want to... Uh, if you really want to get involved. Okay. And that's also the best place to find you then as well, bastionland.com. Yeah, bastionland.com. And Twitter is probably the best place for like staying up to date with things. So that will be at bastionland as well. Excellent. All right. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Chris. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. That's been great. Thanks for having me.
Thank you again, Chris, for stopping by the Guild Hall to discuss with us both of your best-selling and completely odd OSR games. With a wealth of interesting and random options for both players and game masters, as well as two access points to a setting that is both simple and expansive, Into the Odd and Electric Bastion Land are perfect games for one-shots without preparation, while still containing all the ingredients necessary for a satisfying long-term campaign. So we believe all listeners should visit bastionland.com or DriveThruRPG to order copies of these games and find out what you are carrying into deep country or what career you failed at before delving the underground for treasure. And in just a few quick rolls, you too will be off on one of the oddest adventures you have ever played. Before we lock up, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Additional music in this episode was provided by Alexander Nakarada. Logo design for our show was done by Elijah Nest. Special thanks to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast, Hodag RPG, SL McClellan, and Rikolas Weishaupt for their help in completing this episode. And as always, thank you to all listeners. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe to, rate, and review DDG Pod on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If your preferred app does not support reviews, then please share this episode or one of your past favorites with a friend or on social media. Feel free to tag the guild in your post on Twitter or Instagram at ddgpod. That concludes our 10th episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you corpse collectors and backward legionnaires, we escaped again. But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky. (laughs) 